The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. A sleeper must awaken. find our own path in the world. Sometimes, though, paths are laid out for us by those who cannot know that of which we are capable. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and base of a pillar, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's presentation is Dune, the 1984 science fiction epic written and directed by David Lynch, based on the novel by Frank Herbert, and my guest is Anthony Malone, who joins me in his citadel in the deserts outside Croydon. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Jeremy. What can you tell me about Alejandro Jodorowsky? Um, Jodorowsky is um, uh, recently doing the rounds in the culture because, of course, um, a, a, uh, a documentary came out uh, called Jodorowsky's Dune. And I saw it and I mourned the lack of... Um, Hodorowsky's Dune and apart from that I know bugger all about Alexandro Hodorowsky um, Alejandro Jodorowsky am I, am I oblivious to a great master of cinema well he's certainly a man who knows his own mind <laughs> and if you've seen any of his movies you'll know that his mind is not a place you want to visit yeah that's I have an inkling that um, it's a little out there but then again we are talking uh potentially about um, his vision for Dune. And isn't there a book of his designs for... Um... I'm sure there is. Mm. Um, Dune had been uh, considered as a potential uh, film subject since the early 70s. And Arthur P. Jacobs, who produced Planet of the Apes, intended this to be his next project. But uh, then he died, which made it difficult to continue. Yes. And um, hasn't stopped Orson Welles though recently, has it? Well, he's got sort of um, avatars in the contemporary world. <laughs> um, but uh, the rights sort of kicked around. They wound up with a, I think, a French group that drafted in Jodorowsky. Right. And he had a dream based on the pitch that they gave him, and he decided to make a film out of the dream he had rather than basing it on the novel, which he didn't bother reading. Oh, this is what I gather. I haven't actually seen this documentary. Have you? Yeah, um, it's a bit intense. And basically, the premise of the, the documentary is he was going to make Dune. Um, he he got some fantastic art together, and then the project didn't come uh, to fruition. And that's two hours of it. So, um, so yeah, it's an interesting artist who might have who might have done an interesting spin on things. But um, yeah, he burned through the money they had doing all kinds of. Uh, complex production designs and drafted in the likes of Mobius, the French graphic novel designer, mm. Dan O'Bannon, 
who'd worked with John Carpenter on Dark Star and would go on to create Alien and apparently reused a lot of the visual ideas in um, in Alien. And when Jodorowsky eventually dropped out, one of his ideas I remember being that um, uh, Emperor Shaddam IV mm. would be played by Salvador Dali. I did read that. Um, and didn't Dali demand was going to be 100 grand per a hour. day per hour? And didn't, they, didn't he, am I right in thinking... He basically set it all up so all his scenes would be filmed in one hour. I think so, yes. Which is I'm sure, where did I read that's that? That's just good business. I mean, that's yeah. that's not the kind of thing you expect from Jodorowsky at all because that's actually really that sensible. strikes me as a bit of a sod. You, I'll I'll get around this somehow. But um, yeah, Salvador Dali as Emperor Shadat. Yeah, I'm sure he would have been up for that. Where did you come across Dune? Well, I've heard the legends of Dune, the film or the book, the production. Who's this one? The, the Lynch's. The, the Lynch's. Okay. The actual one that was made. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it was, it was going to be Lynch's big blockbuster. Mm. This was going to be the thing that would break him through into the mainstream. Yes, he'd had he'd had a cult movie with a Razorhead, yeah, which had a big impact, but in quite a small pool. Uh, Stanley Kubrick loved it. He mm. showed it to the cast and crew of The Shining to get them in the right mood. Mel Brooks saw it and got it immediately because Mel Brooks is secretly a genius mm. and said, this is the guy I want to make my film about, John Merrick. He makes The Elephant Man. It's acclaimed all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's a surprise box office hit and it's nominated for a raft of Oscars. What's the next step for a film director? Uh, it was going to be Return of the Jedi. It was going to be Return of the Jedi. Um, which, which would have been fascinating um, to I, see Lynch versus Lucas. I've... I previously told the story about Lynch's meeting with Lucas because he was interested in meeting Lucas anyway um, because he was able to go off and make all the films he wanted with unlimited money and Lynch thought, hmm, I like the sound of that. Lynch was sick of being a penniless artist. Yeah. So he once he was interested in making Mm. a big movie. Yeah. Um, But the more he heard about Star Wars, the more he thought, this really isn't for me, Mm. I want to run away. And eventually the... uh, Ridley Scott was lined up to do mm-hmm. Dune for a while, but that kind of fell by the wayside and he went off to do Blade Runner instead. And eventually it wound up with the Italian producer, Dino De Laurentiis. Mm-hmm. And he wanted this hot, young, acclaimed American filmmaker who was interested in doing something that was going to be a, a big budget hit. So in comes Lynch. You have someone with a very singular vision suddenly injected into a massive machine and um, this might be um, ringing bells with any enthusiasts of modern cinema because if you look at people like is it Gareth what's Edwards. his face Edwards who did um, Rogue One and Gordon um, uh, Miller yes Ryan the whole the whole uh, Star Wars um, gang who seem to be um, fed into the machine they come out going, it's excellent, thank you very much. And then the stories come out about actually it all went totally awry and it had to be taken over by people with more experience. And um, so the lessons of history haven't been learned from June. Um, do you think, I mean, this is this is a spoiler for the, the podcast, really. Is this film a success or not? Artistically, mm. no. Okay. I've... Having said that... I watched the theatrical cut, which yes. runs, looks at back of DVD, 
Two hours, 11 minutes. Which is the one that I watched. And I, I didn't right. get around to watching the crazy um, Redux uh, version um, but he, he was told to keep it to two hours and if you uh, as we both now know that's insane for this film yes um, it's a 500 page novel yes and there are clear points in that where he does a fast forward yes um, there's pregnancies which are skipped over Jessica suddenly appears and she's full blown a Bene Gesserit um, nun um, it's it's a it's a crazy thing. The thing that pisses me off about this film is the edit of it. It's it's got brilliant vision um, visuals in it, incredible visuals actually, as we will talk about. Um, but story wise, um, things go awry. But we'll get to that as we yeah. pick this pick this apart. I I was very glad that you suggested this film because I think. I'm so sick and tired of people, not least the director, not least Lynch himself, saying, I don't want to talk about it, it's a bit of a failure um, and a pretty much a misstep in my career. I think, in his case, it hurts because he wasn't the one in charge. With The Elephant mm. Man, he wasn't the one in charge, but Mel Brooks was just letting him do whatever he wanted and trusting him. Mm. And There's an awful lot of Lynch in this film. And I started tweeting you a couple of months ago now... Um, Comparisons between shots from June and shots from the recent Twin Peaks, and it is scary. The uh, the and not least the cast, of course, um, but it's scary. The whole thing about the sleeper awakens, the dreams, the clairvoyance. The dream visions are very Lynchian. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah, and the the shots of the unborn um, Alia in the womb, um, and the the embryo that's floating in space. That's exactly the same as from episode eight of Twin Peaks. Um, or a razor head. Or indeed a razor head. So I think it's a direct line of continuity. I wish Lynch would um, own this film a bit more because... Uh, I think it's it's just the trauma of... He, yeah, it's, he was... Not having control, having it taken away from him. He just doesn't want to talk about it. Artistically, for him, this film was so important because he crawled out of that and he went, I will never relinquish Final Cut. And we got Blue Velvet out of it. Well, and who produced Blue Velvet? Was it Dino De Laurentiis? Dino De Laurentiis. Ah, yeah, that, that was, was probably that, saying thank that, you very much. That, That's your. That was the deal they made. Mm. You make this movie and then go and, and do, do it the way stuff. I want to, and we'll fund any movie up to a certain budget, mm. and you just do whatever you want. So June, and the result was Blue Velvet, which landed him another Oscar nomination. Which is, re- regardless of the quality of June, whatever you think about it, absolutely critical to the development of David Lynch as an artist, because we would never have got. Um, God knows what would have happened to him if he hadn't done. We wouldn't um, have had Blue Velvet, and Twin Peaks grows directly out of yes. Blue Velvet. Yes, definitely. And Twin Peaks was the thing that finally mm-hmm. put him into what the mainstream, mainstream. Yeah. with something that was more complicated mm. and more personal than anything he'd previously done. And was a colossal smash hit, parodied on Saturday Night Live, Yeah, um, front, front cover of the Radio Times. It's parodied on Sesame Street. <laughs> yes, it has. That's, that's it? the level yes. of cultural penetration yeah. that it's had. Mm. So it, it stems, there's an awful lot coming out of, of the film. Um, I came to June um, in my teens. I can't remember whether I saw the film first or read the book. Um, I, I, might have a, I might be misremembering it, but I think I saw this late night with my father on a um, sci-fi season on Channel 4. It might be been movie drama, actually. Um, I think I remember that season. Was it in the early 90s? They I ran, suspect... They ran 2001 and 2010 at either end. Um... Possibly, but I think it might have been a bit earlier than that. Okay. Although this film came out in 1984, so um, it, it, by the time it got onto TV, it might be in that season. 
Um, I, ha- I had a good friend in my teens who um, we were both literary sci-fi geeks, so Asimov and Clark and all this, and I think he recommended June. So I've read the book. I have no pr- massive incentive to read the 20 other uh, novels and spin-offs that have um, metastasized out of um, yeah. Herbert's vision. You've no interest in reading Herbert's, uh, Herbert's own other sequels. I might read his own sequels, but I'm not that interested in Apparently his son's um, sequels and relentless mining of this franchise are, um, shall we be polite and just say diminishing returns. So, uh, but actually, <laughs> when I, as someone who recently saw the girl and the spider as well, <laughs> oh, yes. as a spin-offs from the uh, so original, sad. not written Boy, by the original, they author. dropped the ball on that one. Mm. Um, That's going to come up at the end of the year. Uh, in the review of the year, oh yeah, oh, yeah, I'll bet it is. Uh, let's let's save that juice for another <laughs> time. I want to see that. Well, there were, I I looked into this a little because I was interested in um, the background, and there are um, six. Due novels by Herbert. Mm. He planned a seventh, but then died. Mm. And his son and some other guy, mm-hmm. whose name I can't remember, probably not important, um, wrote it up as two slightly shorter books. Mm. And have since then been churning out a bunch of prequels. Mm. Um, and having gone through this film, frankly, with a tooth comb and done and screenshots, it did actually make me think, I wouldn't mind actually reading the... Um, because so much is only implied or skated over in the film, I did think actually there's quite a lot of interesting stuff here. Dune is a complete car crash of influences. There's um, Christianity, there's Lawrence of Arabia, there's, um, oh, there's Islam, Islam. Uh, there's Islam, there's Arabic words all over it. There's, there's um, so, the, the thing that, Zen Buddhism is in there. The thing that really annoys me about the film is it strips out all the interesting yes. subtextual stuff, all the themes to leave the bare bones of story. Yes. I felt the same way watching this as I did with Watchmen. Um, when I, I remember mm. we all went to see Watchmen at the cinema. And I was remember the, this? I remember that I was the only dissenter. Everyone else liked it. Yeah, I said, actually, I had never read the, the graphic novel, and I said, I got the impression that it's not that the film is good, but the source material is really good. And it's that a, actually... It's, it's a bad adaptation of the material, and specifically. Well we could have an argument about whether or not that even belongs on the cinema screen, considering it's a deconstruction of the, the comic book form. But anyway, yeah. uh, conversation for another time. Um, so June, yeah, it's been around. It's definitely one of those um, um, uh, production nightmare stories. Um, it's, it's definitely flawed. Um, it's not got a lot of suspense. Um, there's no real um, question about who the traitor is in this, who's implanted in uh, the Atreides house. It needs more time. Mm. So we are we're addressing this film prior to the great two-film epic of Dune that is heading our way, courtesy of Mr. Denise Villeneuve. Denise? Denise, Denise. Denny? Well, whatever. Denis um, Villeneuve. Who's given us um, Blade Runner... Um, the 80 hour cut yeah um which i thought was visually ravishing and an absolute snore fest and um i thought it looked visually quite horrible well i like seeing great washes of orange on the screen and uh, ryan what's his face walking meditatively through them but yeah you we talked about this on our review last yeah, year and i hate we it. didn't really get on with this film hugely overrated and um so 
from the, the point of view of the director dealing with this material um, and knowing that he's probably going to go for a very literal um, um, and very good-looking um, adaptation of it, I think it's going to be another snore fest because Dune's slow, particularly at the start. I think the best way to treat Dune is... I noticed, oh, yeah, there are seven books, effectively. Seven-season TV show. Yes, absolutely. HBO needs a new Game of Thrones. Well, here it is. Yeah, sci-fi yeah. did do it, but have you seen any of the sci-fi adaptations? No. <gasps> <laughs> my, my, the impression I get is that it gives the books enough space but it doesn't give them any money. No, that's exactly it. And the effects are crippling from the word go. I mean, people complain about the effects in Babylon 5, but that um, is a show that absolutely outstrips the effects because of the storytelling. Babylon 5 was really on the cutting edge, and they yes. they didn't quite know how to do all those things yet, but they were having a go. Yes. And I respect that. But as you say, in terms of storytelling terms, it was very ambitious, and the, the effects were kind of more in the background. Yes. So the acting is is a bit dodgy in the sci-fi series, and and um, and it's got the uh, James McAvoy as Lita as uh, uh, Paul, isn't it? Uh, in one of them, um, I don't think it's James McAvoy. I thought it was the guy who played Dexter. Actually, um, it's also got no. playing Leto. Um, oh God, what's his name? Um, it's going to come to me. I've missed it. He's an actor that I think is a total plank of wood. Um, Brooke it, Howe. it'll come back oh, no, to me. Brooke Howe's great. That would have yes, been fantastic. Good. That would have been fantastic. Um, but yeah, was... the sci-fi series, I was very disappointed by. I could barely make my way into it. And um, uh, a strange little thing. Maybe maybe people just think that the ground is sorted with it. I think if the film doesn't take off, um, they'll do what they're doing with the Dark Tower and... Um, Bollocks it up forever. They'll, they'll, they'll mess, make a mess of it on the screen and then... Some bright spark in five years' time will say, let's do a TV show of it. Let's get it right. Because mm. um, it's an extremely rich experience. Um, but an odd experience, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we've got this far without talking about it in any detail at all. No. What about the film? We should really talk about that, yeah. shouldn't we? Um, the beginning is a delicate time, <laughs> we're told, in narration that's been added in after the fact. So, um, good old Virginia Madsen. Her first film, I believe. Um, and she's... Um, she's Princess Irulan. Mm, she does a lot of, of talking at the start. Daughter of Shaddam Fourth, Emperor of the Known Universe. Are you paying attention? Now, a good game to play here is when does the general audience um, check out the hotel? <laughs> and I think it's pretty much within the first minute or two. Um, because she's pretty. And by that I mean she cropped up in a film called The Hot Spot. Um, which I watched recently because I read the original book, and she plays the, um, uh, the one of the floozies in there. Jennifer Connelly plays the good look, the uh, well-behaved good girl who's the uh, temptation. Friend of the show, Jennifer Connelly. There is another. I did find a, a Virginia Madsen um, uh, David Lynch connection. She's in uh, Twin Peaks: The Return, isn't she? Nope. Oh, um, good! I finally caught you. She out. plays. Uh, the Spectre of Death in Robert Altman's last film as a, as a very sort of uh, kindly, friendly sort of more like um, the uh, the the, uh, the boat keeper on uh, crossing the river Charon. No, Charon. We're crossing the river. Charon, yeah. We're crossing uh, the river Styx. Yes. Okay. Sort of just a, a kindly shepherd. 
I didn't know that. Um, she's also on various podcasts on the internet. She's very intelligent and, and she's a good actress. Mm. Um, completely misused here. She basically does all the talking at the start and then never says another word in the entire bloody film. Well, in the book... Um, she's the quotes. Is the she, yes, there are, there are quotes from her character all the way through mm. to provide historical context. Um, so we're constantly being told these are very important events that are happening here and this will re- re- determine the literally... The, the course of the history of for the entire universe. Yes, and it is the universe. Um, and I think, well, it's we're ten thousand years in the future with June, which I think is a silly, um, uh, you know, uh, but fast forward to do. I, but... I, you kind of need to do that so that some of it actually makes any sense at all. Yeah, but I don't. I mean, I, I read a lot of science fiction at the moment where we're going post-human in about five years' time. So to see ten thousand years, I don't even believe the human race will be recognisable let alone um, unless of course there's a massive contraction and, and all of this um, anyway back to Virginia Madsen uh, she's in Electric Dreams oh yes and the guy in Electric Dreams is um, uh, he has a role in Twin Peaks he plays the shut-in Harold in season two. Oh yeah he's also in Red Dwarf he's the guy in yes, Back to Reality who, who, uh, who gets shot in the head by Crichton. He is. Lenny yeah. Van Dolan. So it's kind of like um, <laughs> everything connects to Lynch somehow. Um, yes she's in, in the hot spot um, the Padishah Emperor Shaddam the Fourth. Yeah. Now you and I like our sci-fi but do you think we're in the land of Princess Leia and Han Solo here? Well, Star Wars worked because it was capitalising on... The Westerns. Westerns, Flash Gordon. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of things we knew, but just with extra bits added on. Frank Herbert had terrible difficulty selling Dune. Eventually it was published by a company that specialised in car repair manuals. It's like if Haynes published Yeah, there's, there's jokes to be made there. But... Um, so it's it's a hard sell. And if you're going to have narration at the start... Just to ease the audience in, that's fine because Star Wars does that. Star Wars does it. Blade Runner twenty forty nine does it. Blade Runner the original does. Yes, it, it does. And so I think, um, despite the fact that critics have always said that the narration in June is a barrier to entry, um, I think I think Villeneuve will do it. Narration itself is not a problem. It's what the narration's saying. Yeah, I you've, think you've got to op- you've got to just open up the world to the audience a bit and not just not just throw a, a bunch of words which is kind of what happens ultimately and do you think Lynch was taking the piss when um, Princess Irulan vomits exposition for five minutes starts to fade out into the star field and comes back and says oh by the way I forgot to tell you something <laughs> it's, it is it is actually quite Red Dwarf so, it is a bit, you can yeah. imagine Norman Lovett doing that oh I forgot to tell you something yeah there's five seconds to the end of the universe. And then... Um, I lie, there's only two. <laughs> <laughs> then she disappears, and we get the credits rolling over um, the sand dunes. And some and great music. Oh, the music in this film is fantastic. By Absolutely. Toto and Brian Eno. Yeah. Um, the, the music is spot on in this film. And there's some very spacey sequences, which are straight off the cover of science fiction novels, and the the soundtrack really complements it. It's one uh, one to buy actually. I'm sure my friend in my teens had the uh, June soundtrack. Um, if exposition hasn't been enough for you by then, 
we then get a computer, some fantastic, probably hand-drawn, oh, lovely, uh, yeah. animated um, descriptions of the nature of the uh, the local solar system, Arrakis, Canadan. Um, K10 and what's the... Guidey ga- Prime. Guidey Prime. Blake Seven, do you think, Nick, that? Uh, get your fingers out of your face. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Guidey Prime is the Harkonnen planet. Yeah. I like how that planet is totally black. Yes, it is. Because it's, it's just uh, covered in smog and industry. And there's a shot where um, they, they cut to a huge... It looks like a fish, and it is spewing black smoke out into the atmosphere. Yeah. And in, uh, again, in Twin Peaks The Return, David Bowie ends up as a kettle spewing out um, smoke and little graphics. Well, and, steam, surely. Well, God knows what he was spewing Someone out. Someone put David stage. Bowie on. I think probably marijuana myself. But um, um, The computer graphics in this are excellent. Um, as is are you sure the computer graphics though because bear in they're mind not, that we only not. had Tron two years earlier yes. and that was done frame by frame obviously they're, they're not they're way too good um, they they must be I don't know hand draw it just looks brilliant in fact the font particularly on the computer graphics that explains the solar system it looks like the same font used for Prometheus it's that modern oh. um Again, it's in the design work. The design, the design is, in this film is up, up, absolutely superb. It's peerless. It's, we a, cut it's, to. A, it's, it's just the writing that's a problem. Yeah, this this giant, stunning shots of spaceships. Spaceship land. Um, the spaceship lands at. Um, and at, and the at, opulent design for the emperor, who's um, who's riven with um, uh, protocol and finery and, and all this, this Byzantine. Yeah. So all that Rococo style ornamentation where everything's incredibly ornate and intricate. It feels very claustrophobic, but as you say in your notes, no windows. Yes, no. Um, pretty much. Well, windows only when you're looking out onto things like the desert or there's some rain outside because they want to remind you that this is a, a wet planet. Um, the production design in this film is off the scale. There are moments that you just think, um, how much did this cost? It looks like the last opera. It it's a massive um, uh, budget. Also, the number of extras. Yeah. They're everywhere. There's armies of these people. Um, there are whole phalanxes of troops standing in the background of these sets uh, who then march away at the end. And you just think, what? <laughs> Very impressive. Well, the story does begin with... Uh, a report from the Guild of Navigators. I love the scene. It's where the way you should have started the film. Because, um, right, it's 10,000 years in the future. I have to, I have to just do a little bit of a, a little crazy for, for the Dune newbies. 10,000 years in the future. Uh, there's been some sort of war with robots and humans won. And as a result, any machine that is capable of independent thought is illegal. Mm-hmm. But there's this stuff called spice, mm-hmm. which if you take enough of it... Um, lets you warp matter and um, and space and time so that you can navigate spaceships in ways that computers used to be able to by folding space together. Helps you do all the maths really quickly, basically. Exactly. But it mutates you into this big kind of fish monster mm-hmm. eventually. Yeah. The handicap is, however, Dune is only found on one planet, and that is the desert world of Arrakis, which is also known as Dune. Yeah. And the guild has got hold of some information. Oh, there's also some psychics as well. The guild's got hold of information that there's going to be some kind of... Uh, dust up. Dust up, some kind of scheme mm. involving getting rid of uh, one of the 
nice imperial houses, House Atreides. Yes. Um, in favour of... He's uh, a very popular guy. He's very popular. He's, he's, a, he's a good chap, mm. uh, Duke Leto Atreides. In fact, he's so popular, he's making the Emperor look like a bit of a plank. Because the Emperor's not that nice a guy. No, he's not. But uh, this scheme will, would ultimately benefit the nasty House Harkonnen, led by a Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who is a large, fat gay man, apparently. <laughs> yes, he is. We need to talk about sexual politics of this film. Uh, which yeah, are, it goes, it's it goes to certain places, <laughs> folks. <laughs> um, that's an excellent pricey. Um And it took me years to figure out what the hell was going on uh, in this film. Um, I love the navigators of the Spacing Guild. There's a lot of really... Um, kind of fish brain things. They are. He's just this horrible, floating, massive but embryonic form um, with his little vagina mouth. It, I'm afraid that is what it. It kind of it does look rather rude. It has to be said, a bit vervoidian. Mm. Um, uh, but this thing comes on an enormous tank. It's clearly fully practical. Um, it's enveloped in these green, sweat, and then it starts throwing around things like "I am not here." Um, don't tell anybody. Um, and the Empress <laughs> looking incredibly You ain't me, right? you have, <laughs> Yeah. And there's another bit of great world building where one of the acolytes says, um, the Bene Gesserit witch must leave. Get her out of here. Because these are the psychics. Mm. This, um, want it. Yeah, this sect of psychic nuns. And everyone's shitting themselves with these witches because they think that they can't do politics around um, these mind readers. And that line is a very good example of um, of showing and not telling because that's that shows you the, the power politics, the fear, the suspicion. Mm. And it's it should be more of what June does. Unfortunately, June doesn't do that. It does tell you a lot of stuff. Um, and not least in voiceover, um, it tries to put novel literally on the screen with um, with an internal monologuing. Um, but here, so, the whole so, scene's brilliant. So much monologuing. There's an awful oh monologue. my god, and so much of it is totally pointless. Mm. Is is he telling the truth? Can I trust him? Yeah. Well, why not just pull a face at him? Yes, That's, it's called acting, dear. Um, Max von Sydow at one point says. Is he the Messiah? Maybe he could be. You could, also. And you just like, think, that could be done with a shot. Everyone, Lynch would do that. I'll tell you what. Everyone who is in this film needs to watch an episode of Yes Minister. <laughs> because Paul Eddington had a rule where if he could communicate the sense of a line with a look, they'd leave the line out. Mm, excellent. Because there's, there's that one scene in one episode where um, he's told that a rival of his has died I and, know the one you mean. And he almost mm. leaps out of his chair with delight. Mm. And he's so and, he and, then, he rea- and then he realizes, oh no, it's, oh, this is terrible. And it's done without any dialogue, mm. but it's so funny. And you, and you know, it, and it's so true. And it communicates exactly the information that you need. Mm. Yes, utter classic, yes, Minister and yes, Prime Minister. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's what this one is. You can communicate so much that they're just having an, an excessive dialogue, just with a look. So you could just have him look at Paul, just at the side yeah. of his as if, hmm, suspicion, hmm, finger to lips, hmm, I wonder. Yeah. You don't need anything more than that. And you've got really good actors who can do this sort of thing, easily. Yes, I mean, it's an extraordinary cast. Um, the Bene Gesserit witch previously mentioned, Mother Mo Mohem, uh, um, is played by the wonderful Sean Phillips, yeah. who is... 
in my opinion, unstoppable, untoppable in, in that part. I can't believe they got her to do it. Um, she's famous as George Smiley's wife and, of course, Livia in um, I, Claudius. Mm. So um, a, an astonishing through line from I, Claudius, actually, to, um, to June. Um, she doesn't get enough to do uh, in June, in my opinion, but um, she's brilliantly cast. So, um, yeah, so as they're going about their... They're getting about. The plan is that uh, the uh, Atreides will be allowed to take control of the operations in on Arrakis. Then the Harkonnens will attack, secretly supported by the Empire. With troops. With troops. The Sardaukar. Yes. And um, it will wipe out the Atreides and the Harkonnens will be put back in charge again. Which sounds like a dicey plan from the off, doesn't it? I mean... Yeah. Because people, because the thing is, people really like the Atreides. So yeah, <laughs> you just think this is this is doomed to failure from yeah. the outset, actually. But um, the Emperor is is um, is kind of it's it's not overdone. But the Emperor, and I'm sure in the book, I can't remember it too well, but um, he's emblematic of um, of a a sort of society that needs to be swept away. It's all. Um, removed from the people it's all about the the ornateness and the refinery and the ceremony and everything um and when you get to atreides taking paul atreides taking over the armies of the 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 free men the fremen um there's none of that um but there's a there's it it's almost exchanging like for like and mm. an element that is completely left out of the movie (laughs) yes and at the end you just think um Apart from him being God, basically, um, how much of this has changed? And, and I'm sure part two of this film, things are going to get... Well, that's the thing. I mean, in, in the book, it's made very explicit that Paul is worried that he's being turned into a literally a messiah, that people will kill for, and that people will mm. l- literally launch a jihad in his name. Yes. And he's not overly concerned about that in the film. Because Herbert had a thing about the hero myth. He said something about um, don't trust um, role models and, and 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 people who are set up to be great heroes. Um, and unfortunately, all of that's missing from this film. It's very much a um, you know a, a coming of age story. It's the bare bones of the story. It, it really is. Um, but anyway, they um, the navigators bugger off, um, and on um, on Caladan. The Atreides planet, which is all... It, it looks like Wales. It does. Um, planet, it, but, it probably but, is. But in a nice way. Because it's all sort of cliffs and coasts and rain, but in a sort of a nice, cosy way. Yes, we go out from the studio. Uh, we get some nice shots. Shots, by the way, which are almost exactly replicated in Twin Peaks The Return, where you're zooming across the sea and then it goes up towards a very stark castle-type affair. Um, and... I suppose it's time to mention that June is famous for being part of the ecology movement in the, the 60s. The ecology of the planet um, was really important at the time because um, the first pictures of uh, Earth from space um, started cropping up on in the culture. Um, the green movement started taking off. June is um, depicting a planet which um, is almost alive. And yet, its surface is com- almost completely almost dead. Almost completely dead. Mm. Um, so we get a, a, a very watery planet of Caladan, 
Um, we get the very, um, just it's not even a planet. It's just it's just mm. a rock. Harkonnens are on some sort of industrial nightmare. Yeah. Um, and Arrakis itself is like Iridius in Doctor Who. It's a total desert planet. There's not a drop of water on there. But what he does, and what was what we, I I think we under under estimate these days is the importance of what he does first which is to bake that into the language so there's awful there's lots of things about how important water is yes um there's a rather horrible moment later on in the film spoiler alert where the baron harkonnen spits on jessica and that's a very complicated moment because actually he's he's honoring her he thinks he's being, um, you know, I must spit on you once because I'm. It's the water. Yeah. But we know that's actually absolutely disgusting and completely out. Of, but it's it's about how it's all baked into the um, the language and the, um, you know, the, the culture, the imagery, the whole thing. Yes. Which is fascinating, and I and I will never be able to go back to when it was first published. But that apparently was a really big thing for the time. It's all over the place these days. Mm. So yeah, sitting on uh, the, uh, the planet of, of Caladan in a room on his own, in um, what looks like a, uh, a stage, um, checking out um, the Harkonnens planet on his little iPad is um, Agent Cooper. <laughs> it's uh, Paul Atreides. He's looking incredibly young. Yeah. Um, who's still not as young as he would be in the books. I think he's meant to be about fourteen in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but bless him, Carl McLaughlin. I'm sure this is his first role. Um, I think he does quite a good job in this film. Um, he does. He is very youthful at times, um, mm. but um, it's very interesting that that Lynch, he obviously connected with Lynch in a big way because Lynch started using him as basically a, a directorial avatar in um, in so many of his films. Yeah. Um, but but here he's playing essentially a sort of royal version of Luke Skywalker, really, isn't he? Mm. Um. Um, we find out a bit more about the Bene Gesserit, that they're seeking a, a messiah. And... Oh, yes. And they're trying to, mo- to manipulate the bloodlines and yes. um, stop any sons from being born. Um, so they really don't like the fact that um, Paul's been born to Toledo. Um, and they, they have a bit of a pop at Jessica for um, I don't quite know how she's managed to pull that off but Jessica who is Leto's concubine yes. as well as the Bene Gesserit herself and that's all quite, quite complicated um, in this because if I remember rightly at the end of this film or at least at the end of the book despite the fact that Paul has fallen big time for Charney Sean Young he marries Princess Irulan because it's a political Match. Yeah. Um, so there's all that sort of stuff kicking. It's very medieval. Yeah. Um, into Paul's room come um, three gentlemen of Verona, right rum sort Thufir Howard, <laughs> Gurney Halleck, and Wellington Yue. Yeah. And um, it's like an explosion in a Scrabble factory. Yes. Their names will be very familiar to anybody who's, who's you know, Red Dune and, uh, and all of this. And and they're, they're, they're three rum sorts. Um, always good to see Freddie Jones. I love him. Um, he can overact as, as much as he wants. Um, uh, he does the same performance in Firefox with Clint Eastwood as the, uh, the British um, Firefox expert. Um, 
um, eyebrows are a big thing in this. Um, yeah, in this film, I don't quite know why he his eyebrows are bananas. And um, Patrick Stewart obviously said, "No, thanks. I'll I'll just go." Well, that's because Pat. No, it's because Gurney Halleck isn't a mentat. The mentat uh, has the big eyebrows. Like yeah, and there's um, it's Peter de Vries. The, um, that's the Harkonnen mentat played yeah. by Brad Dourif also has the big eyebrows. You're quite right. Um, and in the middle is the guy from um, Quantum Leap and Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell, that's it. Uh, who who then cropped up in Battlestar Galactica. So a good friend to um, films of fantasy TV. Um, and then there's Patrick Stewart. Um, <laughs> He's practicing for playing. Picard three years later. So Patrick Stewart is a noted RSC actor, famous for his Shakespearean roles, but isn't averse to a bit of trash, shall we say. Um, After this, he did Life Force, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen. And, and and as I've been bombarding you over the last 18 months, he also crops up in certain Pierce Brosnan uh, straight DVD oh, films. Yes. Um, Listener, you've no idea how much I suffer. <laughs> I love Pierce Brosnan. I genuinely I, yeah, love this problem. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Very underrated. You keep I, telling I me. Oh, he's an underrated actor, Definitely except from you, because you keep fucking telling me. <laughs> One can never have enough Pierce Brosnan. Um, yes, yeah, so Patrick Stewart in this film, he, he does a little anecdote online uh, about this film. Have you heard this one about him, his encounter with Sting? I don't believe so, no. Patrick Stewart um, didn't know who Sting was. Oh. Um, everyone else on set did. So one day, Patrick Stewart goes up to Sting and goes, um, so what do you do? And Sting says, oh, I'm, I'm a musician. And uh, Stewart goes, so what do you play? And Sting goes, um, uh, the guitar. And I think Stewart says something like, so what's the name What What's the name of the band you're in? And, um, uh, and Sting says, oh, it's the police. And Stewart has some weird come, uh, come back to that. Um I sense Stuart's not entirely happy with June. Um, he disappears halfway through this film and reappears on the battlefield um, holding a puppy. Well, it's like the regimental mascot, isn't it? The puppy makes it all the way to the end of this film, by the way, folks, if you're uh, keeping uh, track of um, of Leto's dog. Well, basically. Halleck uh, also disappears halfway, well, less than halfway through and is, and is gone yeah. for much of the story. People come and go. And he's um, he's the Duke's general and is training oh, Paul in yes. combat. Is it uh, Robert Jordan? Um, oh, Duncan Idaho. That's the one. It's I'm weird thinking how of. these yeah. names are all sort of deliberately weird and spacey, and yet I'm having no trouble remembering any of them. I think this is basically because they're baked into our. Uh, we, we've we've. They're been not living though. I, I mean, Dune is. I mean, it's maybe been a big influential. Well, oh, you're right. The names are not exactly part of the culture, are they? No, they're not. I mean, uh, Lord of the Rings has really only really gained currency mm-hmm. as a cultural artifact and as a title since the movies came out. Very I true. I think, like late nineties, you can name like Frodo and everything. Or Legolas Go- wouldn't even. have been Legolas. Yeah, people no generally would know who he was. Arwen or any of that. Um, I'm impressed. Do you remember Peter de Vries? I would have struggled to uh, remember that, uh, even after having watched the film literally this it's last week. Another film in which Brad Dourif plays a bad guy. Like, yes, he's, like he's Lord he's of the Rings. Broken in Deadwood, Brad Dourif. Um, I did once see a film where the twist was that the creepy character played by Brad Dourif wasn't the serial killer. 
it turns out he's just a creepy yeah, guy. Yeah, he's got a uh, he's got one of those faces, folks. He's definitely cast correctly, and although he's getting a bit of a, a ripe performance in this one, he's also um, the sheriff in the remake of Halloween. Oh, really? Which is a sort of an odd. I mean, again, the recent remake, of the, Halloween. the the re, the Rob Zombie remake, where oh, he's right. just he's the town sheriff and he's a, he's good at his job and he's a nice guy and interesting. Brad Dourif in that. Yeah, one? I wouldn't have. Hmm. And he's good, but you know, the rest of the film isn't. Someone's casting against type. As Rob Zombie loves his horror crap. Um, good old um, Freddie Jones. Freddie Jones is the mentat who is the psychic advisor. And Wellington Yue is the Duke's doctor. Yes. And, um, and tutor, I think. A tutor to Paul. Yes. There's a lot more of this in the book, by the way, folks. That um, There's so much more internal dialogue coming from Paul. And you get a much more better sense of Paul being a very, very inexperienced, naive young man. And these three actually being actual mentors to him. Yeah. Patrick Stewart has the following line. Moods a thing for cattle and love play, not fighting. I think I wrote that down as well. And I liked that line so much, I wondered, um, is that in I the book? I did write that down! Yeah. <laughs> Hooray! Oh, look. <laughs> Great minds think alike. And indeed, so did Frank Herbert, because that comes from the book. Like, I uh, did well, a search it, for it. It's a great line. And it's... You it, want to keep that in. Because despite the fact that this is this is a real slice-up, this script, an awful lot of Herbert's material comes directly from the book. And that's why, when it came, the film came out, he went, actually, yeah, it's all right, I can recognise all my um, lines in it. Mm. Um, all the characters are as they are in the book. Yeah. It's, 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 it's just, it's chopped down so much to yeah. get it down to two hours. Yes. Um... Do you think the design in it uh, is Jerno and Caro? Um, I can definitely see the link mm. there. Do you think if this film was in French, um, it would have a higher rating as an art house object? I bet they love this in France. Yes, absolutely. It's a real it, European it, sensibility. Because it, go, it goes back to the French comic book artists working on the Jodorowsky design. Version. Oh, yes, you're right, yeah. So there's definitely a, a, like a European... Bande dessinée heritage. Absolutely. Luke, I mean, The Fifth Element and yes. uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. All that, it's it's very much a continental comic book style. Yeah, Lynch is definitely in tune with the European sensibility. Um, and, I mean, Fr- France loves David Lynch. Yeah. They've got statues of him there. Got probably. I wouldn't be surprised if they do, actually. Uh, big reception for Can- uh, him at uh, Cannes um, last time he was there. Um, so yes, yeah, it did suddenly strike me actually that um, one way to parse this film is to actually think um, it was made in uh, in France um, because if, think of City of the Lost Children or Delic- Delicatessen or even um, Alien Resurrection, yeah, um, all of the sort of crazy Baroque design, the medievalism, mm. um, the steampunkiness of it, um, yeah. It's all over this film. This is not. Um... Well, it's almost more like clock punk, because of a lack of, because it's a kind of a, a higher level of technology, but not yes. computerized. Um, and um, they, uh, Halleck and Paul have a duel. They do with their uh, great blocky shields. So, so yes, they look, so they look like big sort of Michelin. It's Tron era yeah. Um, yeah. effects, and that's probably all, all hand uh, painted onto the screen. Mm. Um, the sort of the shield. I mean, it's very well done. I love it. Um, and, and and I like the ideas of that, and the idea of the slow blade. 
that can, that, that, can, that can only penetrate the shield if you push it slowly. Mm. So you can't just jab someone with it. So it relies more on strategy and mm-hmm. and control. That's it's interesting. There's lots of that's great ideas in this, stuff. in this um, film in, in in the source material as well. Yeah. Um, so they're heading off to Arrakis, and, and and Paul is all over this like a rash. He he's interested in the worms and the uh, and they've got weirding modules as well because they are oh, the other oh, thing yes. is this departs from the book that the Atreides have developed a new weapon that uses sound. Mm which they call the weirding module. This is totally different from the book, where they have a kind of unarmed martial art, which they refer to as the weirding way. Mm-hmm. But Lynch thought that that would just look like a silly kung fu movie, so they changed it to be something else. But this then has a very weird impact later on, when they talk about Paul's Fremen name, Wadib, mm-hmm. being a killing word. Because in the book it means in terms of being a battle cry, mm. but in the film it's no, it's actually something that you say mm. into the weirding module that produces a fatal charge. Yes, and when someone does it for the first time, it's quite an amusing moment in the film. Um, and of course, just to confuse things even further, there is something called the voice. Yes. And this is something that the Bene Gesserit can do, and which something that my friend, when I was 16, um, told me once that his father had used on him. <laughs> I think every dad develops the voice. Yes, so it's you know what I'm talking about, reader, uh, listener. Um, that this is uh, it, it's some sort of force voice, basically. It's um, uh, take your elbows off the table. Yes, and it's the vo- it's um, and it is coercive in this film. It's hypnotic. Yeah, and it's it changes people. Uh, I mean, it helps people, you know, you control them. See, that moment in Force Awakens where Ray hypnotises Daniel Craig's stormtrooper. Basically, think of that. Um, And I think it's... Oh, yeah, that's where George Lucas got it from, then. (laughs) Well, think of Tatooine. Um, Yeah. You know, um, I I do think there are influences of... um, But basically, he he was influenced by everything. What is Coruscant, if not Geedy Prime? Yes, indeed. Um... Yes, we could unpick that. I'm sure there. I mean, apart from Tatooine, which is an obvious parallel to um, to Dune, and I'm, I'm sure that there are lots of other um, similarities. But Star Wars is not a wildly original production, no, no, to say the least. Um, and Tess, um, they're all getting ready to go, and um, Leto talks to Paul about the need for change. I think. Decipher my own notes. Yes, he does. Um, Without change, something sleeps inside and seldom awakens. The sleeper must awaken. Which is a key line in this film. Yeah. Um, repeated a number of times, and it's a key Lynchian line as well. And um, as they as they get ready to go, Paul dreams of Dune and the figure of Fade Rautha, who is the Harkonnen's yes. champion, played by Sting in his our, underpants. Our friend Sting, uh, about which much more later on. Um, yeah, do you think they they do have a moment where um, a, a Paul stands on the battlements with um, his father, um, which if you know if you it, it does have a sense of I'd say goodbyes now if I were you. Um, yeah, that's you know it's a touch of the Lion King is a bit Shakespearean, um, and just to underline the um, it's funny that you say the Lion King because I thought yeah it's like Hamlet. 
<laughs> well, it's the same thing, basically. <laughs> Hamlet, didn't Uncles. Run, Hamlet didn't run around on all fours. Yeah. And he lived indoors. He would have done when he was going potty. Um, to underline the whole sleeper must awaken thing, the last thing that Lita says to his son is um, sleep well when um, uh, Paul is drugged. Mm. Um, but anyway, there is a little test that um, uh, the um, mother, what's the face, um, uh, decides to come and, and conduct on Paul. Yes. Um, he, ha- he has to put his hand in a little box. Which reminded me of Flash Gordon. Oh, yeah, with the tree. And Peter Duncan. Uh, which is also produced by Dino De Laurentiis. I think... Um, <laughs> I he, think that's more scary, that I one. Think, I think Peter, Dino De Laurentiis really loves putting his hands in things. In boxes. Yeah. yeah. That's bloody Hollywood producers for I you. I mean, it's like, it's like an evil lucky dip. Yeah, I, I think... Um, uh, so he puts his hand in his box and basically it um, ups it's, the pain. It's the, it's the agony box. Yes, but he's it, it, but it's well, just a test, and he's fine. And apparently, if you pull your hand out, you die. Because um, ah, because he's got a gom jabar, a, a little gom jabar, which mm. is like a poison needle against his throat. Which would have ended the film rather quickly if um, if he had bottled out. But um, apparently, he is something called the Quizad Sadarak, which is a fantastic name. All of these are coming out of um, Arabic words and um, mm. Islamism and. And all of this. Um, so he's wondering if he's the chosen one, basically. Did you ever? Did you really think that you could bear the Kwisatz Haderach, the universe's super being? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such an on the nose line. It is, but it's great. I mean, it is great. It's uh, it's a melodramatic uh, like G- the Dune, the film really ramps up the melodrama. Yes. Um, and if you like that stuff, which I do quite. <laughs> Um, yeah, all the foreseeing stuff, and the... and there is the line which is, I think, the, the key line for the whole movie, and uh, uh, something that I've reminded myself: fear is the mind killer. Oh yes, yes, and how true that is. Yeah, because um, he has to face his fear a number of times throughout this uh, this film. Um, and as we said earlier, this film is a is a great big meringue of of so many different types of. Um, Influences pretty much everything's in there if you want to go looking for it. Um, so anyway, he he survives the box test. And meanwhile, um, elsewhere in the universe, I pers- <laughs> narrow it down. Personally, think that Herbert might be getting universe and galaxy or even system mixed up there. But um, we meet. Well, well, if using the spice, you can travel. Well, that's true. Yes. Amazing distances instantly. The whole so, thing about so, folding space, by the way, is brilliant. It's so, um, it, it's it's almost um, it's, it's loosely connected to what is now known science yes. about wormholes. Yeah, and the demonstration that they have in all the films where wormholes with people poking holes in pieces of paper. Interstellar, yes. Um, Event Horizon, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is which is um, which is what if Interstellar was an hour shorter and less boring and good? Um, all controversial, folks. Um, so I love the whole folding space thing. I think that's because you just think, yeah, that that's absolutely how traveling without traveling. That's how they mm. describe it. Um, yeah. So you're you're quite right. I personally think that um, Herbert was a bright guy. So it's uh, Terry Nation definitely mixed up. 
universe galaxy system constellation as well oh god yeah um, well a lot of Doctor Who writers tend to do that a lot because mm-hmm. they none of them were scientific yeah and um, whenever they brought in anyone who was scientific it was someone like Kit Pedler who was a medical doctor and David Whittaker who thinks that um, David Whittaker was no can, kind of uh, scientist he thought, <laughs> he, he thought that robots were powered by mercury and you could come out of mirrors and time travel through them and, and all of that but it, so you're quite right so maybe Herbert's right when somewhere else in the universe is a guy with a severe um, Face. uh, facial problem and it is really icky. The Baron Harkonnen is a mess of a man. He's monstrous in it every is sense. Difficult to watch. Um, there's a number of icky moments um, in this film. Brilliant makeup. Um, he's very sweaty. Ian McNeese plays um, the Baron Harkonnen in the sci-fi TV series. Yes, excellent I, I, choice. I, so he's a good choice, but he doesn't top this performance. Kenneth McMillan is. He's. The, the thing about the Baron is he really loves being evil. Yeah. He's really having a great time floating about on his suspensers. Yes. Being very fat, very diseased, leering at lots of young boys. Yes. And um, and, and to, 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 to tie it all together in being really quite offensive, all the Harkonnens have ginger hair. <laughs> They've also got a thing about animals. Um, Leto loves his little puppy, but the Harkonnens have got little capsules where they'll. Um, when Rabin comes in, he squashes what looks like a mouse and then sucks the innards out of it. Yeah. And then when they're torturing, um, I think it might be food. Ho- it's it's Howard. He's got to milk a cat every day. To, yes. For the antidote for the drug they've given him. Uh, so um, they they see uh, animals as, and there's a cow as well that's uh, being diced up in the corridor that Raven pulls a great big um, chunk out of, uh, which I loved. <laughs> so um, it's it's because it's. Because everything there is like a big factory, so that's their equivalent of a vending machine. Yeah. yeah. So animals are not there to be cherished; they're not there to be loved. They're there to they be eaten. Tools. Absolutely, and that's the Harkonnens for you. Um, and they almost certainly see the worms as um, tools just to provide spice. Yeah. So um, in comes um, Baron Harkonnen's nephew. Well, they're both nephews, aren't they? Uh, I didn't. I didn't think Sting's character was a nephew. Might be. Sting's Might character be. is definitely a nephew. Oh right. In which case, they both are. But they're not necessarily brothers. Um, Fade Rother and the Beast Raban. And um, and they're... boy is Raban hamming it up. He has a lot of fun in this film. He's so, going ha ha and I mean grinning the, and the notion of an evil Laurel and Hardy. I think is quite overused. But they are clearly an evil Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, they're not. Um, there's no shades of grey here, folks. No, um, the, the Harkonnens are evil. Yes, none of them have any trace of any good. They in them. put the there's, wind up, Vader. There's no, there's no like turncoat who decides to move against them. There's no one who's working for them who decides that maybe I should, if only for my own sake, help the good guys. No, all of them are bad. Well, Yui, um... Yui's not. Ah, Yui is not a Harkonnen. That's true. No, he does sell out, but then he he has a twist and um, regrets it. Starts weeping when uh, Jessica is captured. But yeah, you're quite right. There's no shades of grey here. They're horrible, and um, and one of them is Sting. Um, Everyone's favourite actor. Yeah, he's notorious for this role. I mean, we can't. We 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 must address the elephant in the room, which is him and his um, him and his uh, flying pants. His his pants and his uh, performance. His performance is exactly what it needs to be. To be honest, I mean, uh, yeah, I it's, suppose it's, it's not a big acting role. 
he has to look crazy and menacing and really, really ripped with his shirt off. True. Um, I wish I was in as good shape as him. Well, he's he must Red have hair been, or not. What, in his 20s or so when he was... He, you're quite right. He, he is absolutely ripped compared to his other nephew... Um, who is not? Who's well? They call him. They don't call so, him. The, they don't call him the Beast because he isn't beastly. True. I think I'd be probably up for the Beast part. To be honest with you, in this film. Oh, don't be silly. I'd be um, yeah. Me and my love of, of um, milking rats. <laughs> <laughs> so That's um, not how sting... I thought that sentence was going to end. Yeah, sorry. I'm telling you more about my private life than uh, you need to know. Sting um, is not a professional actor, and you're quite right. He's not given much to do, so that's good. Um, he's there to be evil, and he pulls it off. Yeah, um, and let's leave it there. Um, he does look sometimes like Stan Laurel. You're See? right about the Laurel and Hardy thing. Um, and then in uh, in, a, in a slightly crazy operatic sequence where Harkonnen and Baron is uh, is going, ha ha, I'm going to completely destroy the uh, the Atreides. In comes um, a young man with purple flowers, um, who then gets the blood sucked out of him. And this this scene I've seen um, uh, has caused consternation um, because it doesn't look good. It looks like they're associating um, homosexuality with sexual deviancy and disease. Yes, because he's all because Arcola's got all this good stuff and pre- and 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 the, the old preying on the young and it's mm. it's all the things all together mm. and and, it, and it's. Uh, it's really not good. And there's a scene later on where uh, Sting comes out of the a shower of steam, which Harkonnen's been circling, and they, there's an implication that that Harkonnen, the, the Baron, is um, is a homosexual, and it's it's a um, it's not great. I don't quite know what David Lynch was thinking about that because he's he, he doesn't have a. Um, you know, he doesn't have he, any kind of track record of this. And... No, it's a very odd, odd thing. And I was trying to find it in the book, but I didn't, um, I didn't sense that at all. I, I think, just think it's a misstep. I think there's an inference in the book that the Baron does have incestuous feelings about his own relatives, because it turns out something that's in the book, which is really important and not mentioned in the film, Jessica is the Baron's daughter. Oh, Paul is his grandson. Yeah, none of that's mentioned. No. Crikey. That's quite important. Slight small print. Um, there's also the the idea that just as the Emperor is is corrupt because of the refinery and the, the, the finery the um, uh, and all the rituals of, of his position, that the Harkonnen, the Baron Harkonnen, is degenerate sexually. Um, he's got no... Um, environmentally, he's buggering the planet up. So yeah. you've got two civilizations which are about to start collapsing. And so there's going to be some sort of void where possibly a messianic figure can come up in the middle, and um, mm. uh, and that's the kind of that's the plan. We'll see if, if the Emperor Shaddam's plan works. And there's a tra- there's a traitor among the Atreides as well. Would you believe it? Yeah. <sighs> who would have thought? Who could it possibly be of the eight or nine people we've already met? <sighs> Do you think it could be that nice English uh, Mr. Stewart? Um, could be. Could be. Um, could be Thufia Howard. He looks weird. It's not Jones. That... Oh, come on. No, Mr. Nice Freddie Jones. Nice? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he always plays incredibly trustworthy characters. <laughs> so that's, yeah, there's apparently a little bit of suspense uh, thrown in there, but we, it doesn't last long. Um, the Atreides um, up sticks to 
Arrakis. Yeah. In an extraordinary sci-fi sequence of spaceships going through ornate doorways um, and stunning model work. Um, and then time gets folded by the uh, the navigators of the Spacing Guild. Utter gold. Brilliant from start to end. Love it. Would like to loads more. And the soundtrack's excellent over that. And the, all these organic designs as they travel, which is very Eraserhead again. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, ha- I haven't seen Twin Peaks The Return yet, but... Oh, you're in for a treat. I, well, we'll see. Mm. It will test your patience at times. It's 50 minutes at a time. It's a piece of piss. No, 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 no. You will know what I mean by it will test your patience. It is referenced inside the actual series that it has tested your patience. You will know when you... <laughs> Anthony, yes. Anthony, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> okay, yes, you, you have a high tolerance for these things. But um, anyway, we'll talk about this when you watch it. <laughs> I, will, I will force your opinion on this. Um, when they make landfall on um, Arrakis, uh, Lynch cracks open the extras again. There are whole lines of people waiting to meet them. There's a ripple effect on the camera to indicate the heat of the place, which mm. is which is fantastic. Um, and who meets them but none other than Dirk Pitt? Who? There he is, Richard Jordan. Oh, yeah, they sent him on ahead. It's Duncan Idaho. It's Duncan Idaho, and uh, fresh from raising the Titanic, which is a brilliant film, as we all know. Um, um, okay. Yes, it is. Thank God for Southby. Um... <laughs> Disregard that last comment, listener. Uh, it's, it's, I, I unreservedly love Race the Titanic. I love Gen- well, Guinness's sorty old sea dog performance in that as well. Yeah, it's great how he turns up and then takes the check at the end of the day. Yeah, so he, he worked on that for all of six hours. Yeah, he but he did that with Star Wars. He just turned up, waved the sword around, and was cashing checks for the rest of his life. Yeah, but he actually made an effort with Star Wars. He Race went the all the way out to Tunisia. What's the famous line about Race the Titanic? It would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic. No, absolutely right, yeah. It's great a very boring film. It's not a... Listen, don't it listen is. to any of this. Don't worry, when we do raise the Titanic for cinema, cinema limbo, uh, listeners, you, you get your own fucking podcast. <laughs> cinema Classics will be. Uh, well, I, I've told you about my uh, spin off from Cinema Limbo, which is going to be Russ Mayer orientated. That's no, it's a spin off <laughs> if I say it. <laughs> okay, I would, when I say spin off, you, you want to do Blake your own rip off? You want to do your own boob show? That's entirely your business. Cinema Bimbo. Oh, <laughs> That's almost good enough to to merit my approval, but no. Cinema raking in the likes. Give you a cinema bimbo. <laughs> anyway, they're there on um, on the wonderful world Varakis, which is a nice holiday spot. It looks like Dubai. I don't um, want to go to Dubai. It's all no, it's I wouldn't all, want to go to Dubai. It's all hot and, and, and ultra conservative by the sounds of it. Yeah, that's your D- Dubai listenership down the down the toilet. Yeah, they're not, they're not allowed podcasts there. But the Harkonnens have left load of sabotage devices around Arrakis. They have ceded control over the place. Yeah, they left all shrimps behind the radiator. <laughs> um, and nasty bombs and, and stuff like yeah. this. But apparently um, it's a bit obvious. Um, but is it too obvious? Yeah. Is, it, is that in itself a trick? And also, because it's a desert planet, water, as you say, is obscenely precious. Yes. And water is seen as a, a measure of one's worth and one's life absolutely there's plenty of water for the uh, the atreides family they're not worried about that but um there's also a technology called still suits which is brilliant which is a special suit you can wear that absorbs all the sweat 
and the waste from your body and processes it into drinkable water. Yes. And you can wander around in the desert for weeks without needing to top up again. And it was one of those ideas which, when I first came across Dune, I thought, why am I not wearing a still suit all the time? That's genius. It's just a um, big nappy. I'm sure there's, there's um, maybe some military tech has um, investigated that. Um, some kind of urine processing mm, apparatus you can carry. In space and stuff like that. I don't think that's... Well, Well, I don't think anything's gone into use. I'm no, I sure, think they I'm sure they've urine. looked into it. They take the water out. Um, if, of course, if you're Kevin Costner in Waterworld, you drink your own urine. He's got he, a nice little... Ch- he puts ch- it through a special machine first. He's got a little still, still machine rather than still shoot. There's some kind of crystals, I think, that you can mm. pass through urine and, and it separates the water or something like that. Takes the phosphates out. Yeah. Anyway, after that little... Uh, Excursion, folks. Um, cinema. There's also there's also kamikaze people, and uh, they are introduced to the planetary ecologist. Max, you mean Max von Max von Sydow yeah, as, uh, yeah. as Doctor Kimes, um, who looks like he's got blue eyes. They're, claims he's not a fremen. They're blue in blue. That's how they're described. That's very true. And you might notice, folks, if you watch this film, that um, the blue eyes are a movable feast. Um, Some, and sometimes they're contacts. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes they are <laughs> not very good optical effects. And sometimes they completely forget them. And that's one of the things that's tidied up by the so-called fan edit. Um, and I, I, I'm, you know, personally, it didn't bother me in the slightest. Um, he seems to um, be dropping major hints that he's actually. Um, gone native, at least. Oh, he's definitely. I mean, he's the thing is, he's got the blue and blue eyes because he's been exposed to, to the spice. Because spice, yeah. he's been living there for so long, he's not a fremen, but he has a close connection with the fremen. But he look, he starts thinking. I wonder if he, if Paul Atreides is the recruit. Yeah, because he's he's clued into yeah. the fremen. Oh, when and Paul rocks up wearing the still suit, already set for desert wear mode. And, Whereas um, everyone else has had just to have, going, how does this work? Everyone else has had to sort of have theirs mm. helped on because they've never. So this apparently on. chimes with the prophecy that he will know your ways See, um, prior to turning up. I get annoyed with films where there's a prophecy because it feels just like here we're going to say what's what's going to happen, and the rest of the movie is that happening. Yes, and it and it feels a bit too just telling us all in advance what's going to happen. There's no. There's no sort of mystery. With Star Wars, for example, there isn't a prophecy... Of, well, later on there's a prophecy about one who'll bring balance to the Force, mm. which then gets forgotten between mm. movies. Luke isn't prophesied to do anything. No. He's just a farm boy who goes on an adventure and winds up saving the galaxy from a, a big space golf ball. I completely agree with you. I think um, it, it, a prophecy needs to have been around for about six films beforehand before it comes to fruition, if you're going to use it at all. Uh, it's just adding, it's lending weight to stuff the lead character does and saying it's predestined. Um, it's a shortcut. Yeah. And it's uh, too often used as a lazy shortcut. Yeah, there's a lot of it here, um, unfortunately. But um, but Paul is already apparently doing stuff that um, the one, maybe he's Neo. Anyway, they're all dressed up in these still suits and off they pop for a little tour of the um, the spice mines. So how do we think that's going to go? Oh, it'll be great. That sounds like um, an uneventful trip to me. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be fine. Yeah, nothing could possibly go wrong with um, with Duke Leto and his son um, on a ship. 
on an unregistered trip. Yes, without telling anybody. With a stranger. Where um, uh, gigantic worms might be involved. Yeah. Um, for the first time ever. And, um, and who do they meet? <laughs> but the director. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a nice little cameo. Um, he's, he's apparently like, the only guy working in the mine. He's like, he's like, he's like playing the, the, the construction foreman, who's yeah. like the cigar in his mouth and a vest and a hard hat. It's quite difficult to take hey, it seriously. Hey, you guys, we got a quarter to meet. And, it, and his, he, Lynch has got such an unmistakable, uh, unmistakable voice, um, and it's very strange to see him cropping Is that Duke Leto? Because he's right there in the middle of this gargantuan sci-fi project. Yeah. The last person that you would expect. What's your um, What's your position on David Lynch? You like as an you admire, actor generally? What? Um, are you a big Lynch fan? Are you hosting the show now? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to bring him. <sighs> right in. Um, generally, uh, I'm very much in favour. Um, uh, some of the some of his work is maybe. I don't enjoy as much as others. I'm not. I'm not that big a fan of Blue Velvet. I appreciate it as a work of art, but it's really going out of its way to be hard to like. Mm. Um, I recently watched the original Twin Peaks all the way through for the first mm-hmm. time, mm. and I really enjoyed that. Although it does sort of mm-hmm. it does, it slackens off a bit when Lynch isn't around. Absolutely. Um, but some of and some of his '90s films, Lost Highway, I really liked. Mm. Holland Drive I really liked the straight story I really liked because it feels Lynchian even though it's a film you can watch with your granny yes yeah. and it's a really nice film Um, more recently his where he's just going into full on 100% Inland Empire I don't want to say Vanity Project because he's really not the type but it was undisciplined yes I couldn't make my way into that I I I, um, I pretty much agree with everything you said. I love the man. I'm really keeping my fingers crossed. It doesn't turn out that he's um, a a secret crazy. Um, We know that he's crazy. But crazy in a good way. But he's like, yeah. Yes, um, in an artistic way. Um, If if you... um, We will get back to June. But if you watch the extras on um, the Twin Peaks box set, um, there's a, a, a surprising... Uh, amount of behind the scenes material and the number one take home from that material is that David Lynch despite the fluffy kindly uncle slightly tripped out persona Mm. um, is absolutely made of steel and is not averse to losing his rag with the executives I got the impression he was quite a tough taskmaster yeah yeah and and that kind of unsettled me because I'd never seen him like that in, in but that before but um uh, particularly when he's talking through the project um, prior and trying to describe the scenes, he has everything mapped out. Despite the fact that you can make an argument that he's just freewheeling it all the way mm. through, no, 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 no. Um, so it's nice to see that he actually has a lot of steel in him. Um, a genuine artist, I think. Um, in, Absolutely. Um, in cinema, um, one description of him that I liked that I saw years ago was that most um, Hollywood filmmakers have a. Um, are a very clear moral signpost. It's um, stories are told in this way: the good will get justice, and the bad will get the comeuppance. But mm. when it comes to David Lynch, the signpost is spinning. Hmm. You have got no idea what's up, down, left, or right. Um, so it's uh, more power to him when it when it came out that it was you know oceans of hours, and he was directing it all, and he'd be in it. It was extremely exciting. 
Um, he's at the point now, I think, where he could announce that he's retiring from filmmaking. Absolutely. And people would say, yeah. Yes. Because it was such a mammoth project, Twin Peaks The Return. And it was, it's been such a success. And it's kind of a culmination of everything he's always done. There is a definite feeling of, um, you're, you're right, culmination is right. So to say, done. Done. And then to go and paint. And then to paint or make music. Yes. I mean, I, I think of him as being a bit like, like the American David Bowie. Mm. Because mm. Bowie was an mm. artist of many things, of which music was the thing that he was best known. Lynch paints, sculpts, yes. makes music, makes films. Films is the thing he's best known for. Meditates. But he does all kinds of things. Yeah. So he has that thing in America uh, that I can't remember the name of, some great sort of convention that uh, he curates, and it is all music, art, um, uh, transcendental meditation, and um, uh, it, it just sounds really interesting. I wish he'd bring that to the UK just so that you could sample it. Um, They'd love it in France. Oh, my God, Pop yeah. over the channel, have it, have it in, in Paris. In some nice wooded glade somewhere. God, yeah. Um so yes, I I love him as an artist. Uh, I agree with you. Some of his films are impenetrable, unfortunately. Um, I love Mulholland Drive. Um, um, there's a particular moment in that which I think you might know, um, which scared the bejesus the out of me. I know. I I knew before you even gave me that clue. I know it's seen the scene behind the diner. Yeah, 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 yeah. I won't tell the listener. Yes. But Just watch Mulholland it's Drive. One, it's one of the scariest scenes I've ever seen. Absolutely. And there's nothing scary in it. There's, yes. there's nothing inherently scary about anything in that, but there is just that sense of dread, of some undescribable horror mm. that you can't define, but you know it's there. Mm. And it's in the acting, it's in the way it's photographed, the sound design, because Lynch is all about the sound design. Absolutely. In everything he's ever and done. And the reaction of the, uh, the characters in the, in the scene. Yes, um, I was. I tweeted a mutual friend of ours when I was about to watch Mulholland Drive for the first time. Ash, and uh, he's a big David Lynch fan. Oh yeah, he's and then um, about twenty minutes in, when this scene happened, I tweeted him again, and to say, um, I'm I've just, just going to get myself. <laughs> Absolutely, um, I've just called an ambulance to, uh, to get CPR. Um, genuinely, one of the most frightening moments in cinema. That. Um, mm. So yeah, God bless him for providing him laughs like that. Um, who knew that the little uh, guy in that little spice refinery, out of his little head, could come such um, wonders? And yet, at the same time, the straight story is. No, I haven't seen that because I think it's a very it? sweet, gentle story. But it has that edge of Lynchian strangeness to it. Hmm. The story of a man travelling across three states on a lawnmower to see his ailing brother. He can't drive because he's. Uh, hmm ineligible for driving license because he's so old and in such poor health and he's determined to make the journey by himself and it's just his journey and the things he sees on the way and Robert Farnsworth's last film mm -hmm. uh, for which he was Oscar nominated he killed himself mm -hmm. about six months after it came because he had terminal cancer oh god Harry Dean Stanton is in it Sissy Spacek ah. um, I must catch up with this and it's, it's a David Lynch film with a U rating and released by Disney and yet Lynch was just a, could do whatever he wanted because he wanted to tell this particular story. Mm. When you consider that's that sort of filmmaking's been made, and then look at the stuff we have to put up with these days. 
Well, it's, it's what happens when you give artists the resources to make the kind of story they want to do. It just happened that that's something that was of that type. That Yeah, this is going to be ready to do you. Well, let Disney have it. They'll, put, they'll promote it and give it all the support it needs. Because the argument these days for Gareth Edwards and Ryan Phillips doing Star Wars is that... Who's Ryan Phillips? Ryan... Johnson. Johnson, thank you. Uh, who is Ryan Phillips? It's Jeremy Phillips. Jeremy Phillips. Who's Hello. that guy? Um, oh, he's that guy who wrote all those scripts he keeps sending to you that you never fucking read. <laughs> Maybe one day. Um, their argument for doing Star Wars is A, I really like Star Wars, and B, this is the greatest film school uh, on the planet. So I'm going to be learning CGI, I'm going to be marshalling lots of people, etc., etc. Which is a, not an unreasonable argument, but it helps if you know what you're doing beforehand. Because Star Wars these days is very corporate. Yeah, my God. Is Everything it... is having to conform to this corporate model being imposed, ironically, by Disney. So this is why I think they keep getting sacked. Except for Johnson, who weirdly seems to come up with stuff that rubbed a lot of people up the wrong yeah. way. And yet Disney had no problem with. So Gareth Edwards wants to make a war film and he gets shown the door. Um, uh, Lord, Lord, and, Lord and Miller wanted to do uh, a comedy heist movie I think mm. and they got replaced with Ron Howard who is the safest of safe pairs yeah pads. and I think that's the pity that's the one that I regret I, I'd like to have seen them do something really bananas with Star Wars um, it would have been so refreshing yeah. because that's what they need they need to be able to think out of the box and not just have everything come back to this is the story of how Han Solo met Chewbacca yes. and how he won the Millennium Falcon and, his name. and how he first met Lando Calrissian. No, we want to yeah, do mix more. it up. Yeah, let's let's and and how he did the castle run in five parsecs or whatever it was, and then sort because of a big a space octopus. But these days, Star Wars isn't a film; it's an IP. It's a brand. Exactly. Yeah. It's um. It's all to do with the billions that are being made. So these guys get fed into it. Um, thinking that um, they'll come out the other side with great skills. I noticed that Ryan Johnson is doing um, an interesting, quirky little thriller um, yes. with a great cast. So more power to him. He strikes me as a nice guy. I just think it's such a pity to see these uh, people getting fed into, suddenly going from a, a what, one million budget to 70, 100, 120 million. It's crazy. Well, Gareth Edwards went from for Mon- Godzilla in his bedroom. Well, no, 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 monsters. Monsters in his bedroom, which cost yeah. very little, like hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I think, to then do Godzilla, mm. and that worked. I thought that his take on Godzilla was actually very good. Yes. Um, but he, I think, he was given creative control because Godzilla, as a Western production, was such a poison chalice that, well, you know, whatever you do, it's not going to be worse than the yeah. last one. So you don't get the sense it. of corporate control over hanging over Godzilla in the way that you do with with Star Wars and, um, no. and Kathleen Kennedy's BDI. And the uh, next year's Godzilla film, Godzilla King of the Monsters, oh, yes. is directed by Michael Doherty, who's not a, a big name, but the last film he made was called Krampus. Oh, it's a yes. Christmas horror film, God. which was very highly acclaimed for a Christmas horror film. And 
completely bombed because it had no support from the studio, but got extremely good reviews and is now a cult hit. That's not the one with um, uh, I think it's Santa Claus is dug up in. Um, no, that's Rare Oz. Exports. That's a, oh, that's, that's a Norwegian it. film. Yeah. No, Krampus is about it's about a family who are really horrible and mean to each other, and then one Christmas, um, Father Christmas doesn't come to see them. Krampus. <laughs> that sounds great. And Krampus is the anti-Father Christmas. Oh, I have a night. Uh, and they are in like that. big fucking trouble. <laughs> I'm going to track that down. Is it worth it? Is it a good? I haven't seen it. It is actually on TV over Christmas. Right. Listener, I'm sorry it's too late for you, but it's easily available on DVD. Great. Uh, I think it's Tony Collette and Adam Scott. Great. Among, among many others. So it's an excellent cast and apparently. Moriarty. No, Adam Scott. Oh, right. The, uh, Amer- most better known for comedy, but he does drama as okay. well. From Parks and Recreation and, and other things. Okay. Oh, well, I'll look at that. Okay, we've de- deviated slightly from the land of worms. Worms. You say, uh, Oh, no, hang on, we've already done that bit. I'm just about to read out. Yeah, so they collect, they rescue the, um, the refinery workers from out on their mobile refinery in the desert. Robots of Death. Another Doctor, Absolutely. Another Doctor Who knockoff. Absolutely. Um... And uh, just as they, they get everything, everyone away into their flying machine, yes. just as the giant worm erupts out of the ground and swallows the refinery without even chewing. In a bravura special effects moment, the worms in this film are amazing. For um, a, a bit of a silly concept, I think, um, particularly when they start harnessing them and riding them, yeah, um, <laughs> that the, worms, the scale is done quite well. Um, it's obviously going to be done with CGI when they they get round to it with the with the new version. Um, and I, with my um, psychologist hat on, um, do you think there's um, anything Freudian about? Yes. All of this. Yes. Because they're worms, but they have mouths on the end, so it's the penis and the vagina. Yes, and notice what happens to Baron Harkonnen right at the end. Yeah, he not only gets blown out the window, but blown right into the mouth. He is consumed by the worm, whereas Paul Atreides, the one who gets control, controls, harnesses the worm. Yeah, this is all not. It's not exactly subtext, is it? It's about no. controlling sexuality, basically. Um, and the decadent, depraved Baron Harkonnen eventually gets consumed by an enormous um, dick. Yes, with teeth, um, which is a classic anxiety drive. Yeah, Vagina, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as we've said over and over again, June has got uh, every influence under the sun, um, and of course, um, there's a bit of Jungian um, archetypal stuff going on in there as well. But let's um, move on to crazy worms. Yeah, worms really, really big, and um, <laughs> Kynes notes Leto's concern for the men. That you know, Lito is running. It's right. Come on, come on, yes. men. Let's evacuate. And he's genuinely concerned about these total strangers. And Kynes thinks, hmm, this Duke, he seems to be mm-hmm. a much better man than I was told. In one of the rare moments where you, you're shown rather than told that um, Lito's a good man, you yeah. see him actually being a good man. Um, Meanwhile, Jessica is examining the stuff. It's worth noting, actually, that we're just about at the point where we'd be wrapping up the episode. We're less than halfway through the movie. Well, it's a rich feast tune, isn't it? It's, oh my God, are we really... Okay, we're, we're, let's... we're 52 minutes in, according to my notes. Right, well then, let's... Uh, we don't want to do a fast-forward the way Lynch does in this film, but... Uh... Uh, you are scanning for Harkonnen tampering on the staff. Oh, yes. Uh, but that's not going to go well, because it turns out that Yue is the traitor. 
and he he talks about his wife and how he doesn't want to talk about how his wife died and that's never really fully explored it's meant to give him motivation for betrayal um but it's a little bit skated over in in the uh, group of staff members that uh, get scanned is um is the housekeeper that um yes uh, that appears who has blue eyes um and who identifies Jessica as the Bene Gesserit's mother. Mm. Um, another Shout part out to Napes, her name Oh, is. yes. Played by Oscar winner Linda Hunt. Um, wonderful name again. I'm, I can't. I think I've seen her in something with Richard Gere. Um, the Year of Living Dangerously, with Mel Gibson, for which she won her Oscar. Oh, really? Oh. She uh, played a man. Oh, God, I, don't, I haven't seen that. I'll have to track that down. Any good? A good Mel Gibson film? Um, well, it was sort of early in his career before he went crazy. Yes. Um... I believe so. It's, a, I think, about journalists living in uh, Saigon just before the Vietnam War, and she plays a Vietnamese photographer. So she's playing a man and playing a different race at a time when you could do that and yes. still get an Oscar. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, the staff are getting um, scanned, and um, uh, Paul is in his room and has a bit of a, um, a James Bond moment. Um, basically, he lives through that scene in Live and Let Die with the snake, which comes in The Hunter Killer. Hunter Seeker. The Hunter, Hunter Seeker. And uh, it's kind of slithers, well, it, it moves through the air. And, and by the way, all the air stuff in this film the, um, the Baron Harkonnen floating around, the lighting, and this Hunter Killer, you can't see the strings. And this is pre CGI. Mm. Um, the, the light bulbs are a bit shaky, um, but it's all brilliantly done. That's what uh, Dino's money does for you. Yeah. Um, this is a terrifying little thing that uh, comes in. It's a syringe. Um, and if you it's, it's, move... just a, it's just a flying syringe. Yeah, and it comes for you. And apparently it's been controlled by somebody. I wonder who. Um, and, um, and then someone comes in through the door. And it's the, it's the shut-up mates, but Paul grabs it out of the air before it can get her. Yep. Um, and... Then the traitor's revealed. Yeah, and uh, he shoots Leto. But it turns out that Yue has a scheme of his own. Yes. Because it's wheels within wheels. That the whole thing is him wanting to get revenge on the Harkonnens. So he pulls out one of Leto's teeth and replaces it with a phony one that's got poison in it. He says, when the Baron leans into you to deliver the killing blow, you bite down on that and breathe out and it'll... Boom! It'll it'll blow a cloud of poison gas into this. And face. it's a horribly uh, authentic tooth removal as well. And they do these things really well. Um, you know, Leto's about to get um, well off because he tells his son, "Sleep well, my son. Yeah. The sleeper must awaken." Um, Paul's been drugged by that stage to keep him out of the way. Um, and this is just the start of. Um, uh, bad news for the Atreides family. Yeah, all the weirding modules are burned. Yes, and, um, the um, shield starts coming down. Uh, um, uh, Jessica and Paul are going to be thrown to the worms. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Uh, Chuck them out in the Dunk, desert. Duncan Idaho gets killed. There's a big battle. Yes. Um, don't you think that it's a bit crap how um, the Sadoka, the Imperial soldiers, all seem to be dressed in hazmat suits, painted black? Well, yes, and I thought um, that's probably because they're meant to be incognito, that they must be identified as uh, ah! Emperor's troops. Yeah, but it's like they've just covered themselves in bin bags. You are right, though. They are black hazards. They've like, holes cut out for their yeah. faces. It looks absurd. But I, I, I bought that. 
I, I, it's just silly and impractical. You want silly and impractical? Here's the shot of Patrick Stewart with Leto's dog going into battle. They're literally on the battlefield holding the pup. And folks, look, I'll save you the worry. The look, pup makes it. In Victorian times, it would have been a regimental goat. <laughs> I have absolutely not far cones. Had anything a to do with it? A puppy is small and practical. Well, he's pretty indestructible. Um, well, Gurney disappears at this point in the movie. He does, and then he comes back. He does well, in uh, movie time. Enjoy what, your last shot of Patrick Stewart. In movie time, about two years passes until mm. we see him again, where he's just running around in the desert with a bunch of survivors. And there's a shitload cut out of Gurney's story yeah. for this, unfortunately. Um, Ewan gets killed. Um, Paul tries the voice. Oh, hang on. Oh, oh yeah. Um, Paul and Jessica are being taken out to the desert by a couple of Harkonnen troops. Yeah. Paul uses the voice on one of them and gets him to remove his gag. And um, they shoot the pilot and take control. Because, um, yes, Paul says, Ah, oh, yes, one of you will be able to have sex with my mother. Mm. It's... And they wind up shooting each other. <laughs> yes, basically fight it out. Uh, Jessica's got a rather nasty uh, mouth gag in it, which has got some sort of plug that reaches into her throat, which is a bit icky. Yeah, um, to stop her using the voice. Because they think that exactly. Paul, cause Paul's just been gagged just to stop him from talking. They don't know that he can use the voice as well, like Tom Jones. And I wondered why he didn't say to the guy he was controlling, kill your friend, then kill yourself. Because... It's like the whole thing about you can't hypnotise someone into doing I thought there might be a book reason. And it's much more interesting to say, to kind of um, manipulate people through this rather than say, yeah, jump out the window. Okay, bye. (laughs) Yeah, and he's got to kick the guy in the face um, for being a nasty guy and then he's got to leap to the controls of the um, The, the spaceship. The Thopter, I think it's called. Yes, I think you're right. um, Which is a contraction of Ornithopter. Yeah, um, because everything's like... Medieval, despite it being like, ten thousand years, it's like they invented space travel in the fourteenth century. Hmm. I'm reading a book at the moment um, by Gene Wolfe called "The Shadow of the Torturer," or rather, I've finished that one. I'm moving on to the the the, uh, the sequel, and that is a um, a society which is after the Great Human Empire. So all of the stuff that we read about in science fiction, the uh, the colonization of other planets, has happened. But it's all gone horribly wrong and it's contracted back down to Earth. So all the artefacts of the civilization are lying around them. But it's all gone very medieval and, and feudal. Mm. And um, and that's one explanation for why Dune, despite being 10,000 years in the future, has this. Um, science fiction fans won't have a problem with it, though. Um, so, yeah, they 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 don't exactly land. They, they crash land um, in traditional science fiction um, spaceship crashing mode. And um, the the book here goes into a lot of detail about their survival efforts, and the film kind of just cuts it down to they crash land, they're in the desert, mm. and then the Fremen find them, basically straight away. It's rock one, get to rock two, which is bigger, watch out for the worm, and guess what's inside rock two? The Fremen. It's the Fremen. And it's all of the Fremen. In, 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 in a desert which is the size of the planet. So mm. you're quite right, it's um, not great. But, uh, but it's... In the book, they, they, they're just sort of farting around in the desert for a few chapters, and this is yeah, we can kind of we can do without that. that uh, this is one of the edits that I don't mind because yes. it just tr- movie time. Yeah, it's just it, trimming off the stuff that we don't need to tell the story. Yes, whereas it's they're not cutting any of the thematic material really. 
They're not cutting any of the stuff about ecology or commerce or religion or anything it's like that. It's it. just, yes. it's just extra pages. Yeah, God knows. I mean, I think Lynch went through five drafts of the, of the script. God knows how he got down that. Too. I have read the shooting script. Oh, God, really? You can find it online quite easily. Is it a monster? It's about 180 pages, so it's about three hours worth. And there's nothing significant that's in that that isn't in the finished film. It's more that it just feels like it's at a slightly slower pace. Everything has a little bit more time to breathe. Um, I think that's... The uh, the introduction by Princess Irulan is in there as well. Right. I think it's a little while ago that I read it. But it's pretty much what we see mm-hmm. in the finished film. So it's I imagine that the uh, the extended TV cut that's been floating around for a long time... Yeah, Alan Smithy. Is, no, it's not. He didn't use Alan Smithy. Judas Booth. Oh. Crikey. John Wilkes Booth, of course. And isn't that meant to be... That adds quite a fair amount. Um, and I presume that forms part of the fan version that I've got, which is... Um, I expect so. Yeah. That has all the... Um, it's definitely going up to about About hours. half an hour, at least, of additional material. Yeah. But it's it's going to be extra bits and pieces. Yes. Not whole chunks. Here's a complete reimagining of it. Um, yes, I've often thought about whether Lynch should do a director's cut, but he's not a director's cut person. I think he... Um, I think, that's why I stuck to the um, the, the, the theatrical version for this because I think that's basically that's the version the, the, under the circumstances he is most prepared to live with. Yes, and then the extended version was just done for TV, some uh, uh, some uh, commercial thing by um, De Laurentiis, and he said, "No, I'm, I didn't authorize this. I don't want my name on it." Mm, yeah. Quite um, so uh, now there was almost a horrible accident at this point where. Jürgen Prochnow, we haven't said that Lita is played by Jürgen oh, Prochnow, yes. um, is tied down and the Baron's all ah, going, ah, ha, 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 yes. I'm going to kill you. And he literally is going, ah, ha, 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 folks. Yeah, because he's so evil. Um, one of the bulbs in the lighting rig above Prochnow exploded and Prochnow was tied to this stretcher and he managed to free himself... A split second before molten glass landed where his face had just Lovely. been. So, that could have been quite horrible. Because the scene that that happens with the, the tooth and, um, and the results of that, which is great fun, um, it appears again later on in the film where you see a shot of, of Leto's head, um, but his cheek is disintegrating. And they've done some plastic fantastic thing where they're putting yeah. flash, flesh away. And I wondered why Lynch saved that for the dream rather than we didn't get that actually um, in the shot itself. Possibly it didn't come out as well as he'd wanted or it came out looking too strange, too unrealistic compared to the the real mm. parts of the rest of the movie. I think the lighting might have been a bit off. Maybe because of one of the bulbs exploding. Or possibly, yeah. Um, but as a, as a bit of dream imagery, mm. I think it works better than a moment of torture or anything. But, uh, yeah, um, Lito, Lito bites down on the, the false tooth. Uh, yeah, the plan buggers up, basically. It buggers up because, yeah. he, 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 because he's dying and his vision's going, he uh, breathes it into De Vries's face instead. Yeah. And De Vries dies, but uh, the Baron is fine. Bloody idiot. He could have ended the film right there. Yeah. 
if only. So we should. Uh, uh, synopsis of where we're at with this. Um, Harkonnens have taken back uh, um, Arrakis. Arrakis. Um, the Atreides are in disarray. Um, very conveniently, Paul has been banished to the desert with his mother. Um, but they've been taken in by the desert by people. By the desert people who have some weird legend about the Chosen One. Yeah, um, funny that. So it's looking good for the Emperor at, at uh, the half-time point. Um, Jose Ferrer as the Emperor, no <laughs> He's giving quite a... He's, he's, he's underplaying it slightly. He does. Do, he goes, goes a little hammy towards the end, I'd say. He, he's hitting the right notes, I think. Because he's playing the Emperor of the Universe... And it could be so easy to just go, ah, but no, he's playing it. No, I am an emperor. I am a statesman. Yes. I'm very, very powerful. He's bringing but I am a statesman. So he's taking it seriously. And at this stage, it's one nil to him. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Paul and his uh, and uh, his mother um, go um, spelunking. Yeah. After a rather close encounter with a worm, uh, and who do they meet? But uh, Big Ed from uh, from Twin Peaks, Everett McGill, who plays what's the character's name? A uh, Big Ed. No, in Dune. Oh, oh, I can't remember. Bollocks. Um, do you do you not have a copy of Dune? The um, book. I do on on here somewhere. I'm, I'm well, sure we've You've got shelves full of the bloody things. I don't think I have a physical copy of Gene actually. Um, maybe in a box somewhere what kind upstairs. Of madness! Are you living where you don't have physical copies of things anymore? I. Uh, oh. But he has a wonderful line. He says, "I will take the boy man." <laughs> Which, considering what Baron Harkonnen gets up to, could mean anything in this film. Mm. Um, he um, Paul also runs into Stilgar. Oh, well done. <laughs> That's his name. Um, and uh, Paul runs into um, Sean Young. Sean Young. Uh, again, is left vague. She is Kynes' daughter. So she's not, uh, she's not, a, she's not a pure-blood Fremen, yeah, but she's been right. adopted by, uh, presumably her mother was a Fremen. Because there's another little thread going through this, which is that um, they want progress to be a mingling of bloodlines. That there's going to be some that 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 Jessica's had a son, which is going to be half Bene Gesserit and or brought up in the Bene Gesserit way. Yes. And then um, and then you've got uh, Jessica's pregnant, by the way. Newsflash, and has been taking lots of spice. So. Um, uh, which is going to have ramifications um, in, in the entire book series. But anyway, um, he's been seeing Sean Young in his dreams, which in the 80s a lot of young men were, because, um, of course, she was um, she was up for Catwoman at one stage, wasn't she? She went a bit nuts on Tim Burton. She, to... was, she was originally cast as Vicky Vale in the first Batman film, but while training for a horse riding sequence that was cut from the film, oh. she fell and broke a collarbone. Oh, so right. she had to be replaced, and Combatant took the role instead. When they were doing Batman Returns, she felt that she was owed a role, so she went on to the Warner Brothers lot, dressed in a homemade Catwoman costume. Oh, she has since been very open about the fact that she's had problems with her mental health mm. over the years, and I think it's probably related to that, rather than, hey, isn't she crazy? Yeah, she's probably got actual problems mm. that aren't quite as funny. 
But um, no, she wouldn't have been. I think she would have been wrong as Vicky Vale, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I wasn't hot on Kim Bassinger actually. Uh, I, I find Bassinger quite insipid when she's not doing um, film noir roles. Um, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer brilliant as Catwoman. Um, she's perfect as Catwoman. Sean Young good as an android in um, Blade Runner. Um, yes. And then, and as a transgender man in Ace Ventura: Pet Detective. Oh, I I neglected to see that classic. It's obviously a massive hole in my. Uh, I do like Jim Carrey, it's, but I don't uh, like Ace Ventura. It's a film that's dated very poorly. Is it? It's that sequel to the original Ace Ventura. That's Ventura. the first one. Oh God! Because isn't the second one where he goes through the Stargate of goofiness? It's, you know, Jim Carrey ramped up to a hundred and eleven. Um, oh, and um, whilst they're getting to know each other, Paul Atreides and Charney, um, uh, Baron Harkonnen is having a bit of a um, sauna with Sting, which is where we get the famous shot oh, yeah. of Sting in his underpants. Um, and the Baron leering at him in a weird, unpleasant... Yeah, so he's he's circling this kind of plume of steam out of which Sting steps. And to be fair play to Sting, um, you know, it's, it's quite... Few people who can actually um, get away with that. Mm. Um, anyway, um, Paul takes the name of uh, Muad'Dib. Indeed, he does. Which is the I think it's the, is it the strong part at the base of the pillar? Yes, you're right. Yes, what it is in the Fremen language. I think in in Arabic it means something like teacher or ah. or shower of the way. Because he also takes on the the secret name. Of Usul. Usul. Yes. Which is the shadow cast by the second moon. Mm. Which is all great stuff, but um, the general audience have long since left the uh, the theatre and are, yeah. are watching um, Lethal Weapon or something. Um, or Ghostbusters again. Or Ghostbusters. Um, Raban kills Kynes. Um, yes, he does. And, and here we get a sort of fast-forwarding of... Uh, of the affair between Charney and and, um, and Paul. Um, uh, and I seem to think... I didn't get the time at this point. I think we're about 30 minutes away from the end of the film. We're, we're about uh, three quarters of an hour from the end Which of the film. Which is extraordinary, considering the amount that they've got to get through. Yeah. Um, he's still farting about in the desert, and he's got to become Emperor of the Universe. So you want to get a wiggle on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um... Uh, he's going to teach them all the weirding way. So there's big, big Lawrence of Arabia overtones here. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And um, what they want to do is they want to seize control of the spice because they know means of production. It's, it's the political power of the entire universe. Uh, they've got, and they've also got giant underground reservoirs of water. They do because there is a prophecy that the um, whoever he is, well, their messiah, whatever his name is, going to be. Uh, will return water to Arrakis mm. and make it rain again. So now you know how the movie's going to end. I um, can neither confirm nor deny. Um, we shall see. Um, um, yeah, so he goes around teaching these um, uh, Fremen, free men, um, the weirding way, uh, which is basically how to blow up blocks of granite. And there's quite an amusing sequence. That's that's the it's the funny scene in the film. It is. Right, hit hit the rock, hits it, nothing happens. <laughs> Kick the rock, kicks the rock, nothing happens. Uh, Command the rock to break. Break! And everyone, yes. la- and everyone just laughs at him. So, yeah, see, that doesn't work either. What were you expecting to happen? Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, he picks up his little um, his vocaliser. Uh, and I think he says, 
Bois. Something like <laughs> It is, it is like that. Um, and he explodes this thing. It's very, very nicely done. And it's going to be horrible CGI when Villeneuve does it. Um, Villeneuve. Villeneuve. I'll get his name right one day. Um, and then, most amusingly, um, someone says Maud Deeb. And um, the wall blows up. Yeah, it's because his name is a killing word. <laughs> That's right. And he kind of struggles to control the vocalizer. It goes bananas on him like a out of control machine gun. Um, but anyway, these guys in what looks like one scene become a, an absolute cadre of, of um, magical fighting warriors led by um, Jesus. Uh, led by Jesus. So I don't know if they're going to win this war. <laughs> Um, because they're up against a bunch of um, degenerate tossers degenerate, who are on the downers, degenerate ginger rapists, <laughs> rat-eating monsters. Um, but there's one final proof that Paul Atreides has to do, which is go in and straddle an enormous worm in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And um, just to underline the point, he erects a thumper. <laughs> yeah, because the, the thumper it, 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 it creates a, a it, it makes wave. it makes a noise that attracts. The worm, and you can you can plant one down and then run away, and then all the worms will be attracted to that, so you can make your escape. It's brilliant. It makes desert. perfect sense. Tremors, um, indeed, indeed. Tremors is basically due with more jokes. Yes, and more bacon. Um, when Paul Atreides um, succeeds in harnessing the worm, we get a uh, fantastic moment on the soundtrack of. Almost Flash Gordon rock guitar. Oh, it's chord. very much Flash Gordon, isn't it? And it's of its time, and um, you can almost see the album covers um, <laughs> that this is coming off from. It's it's great. It's um, Brian Eno rolling his eyes yeah, in the recording yeah. studio. They want me to do what? Yeah. Um, there's a tiny uh, moment which is is difficult to, to understand, and is definitely gone into more in the book. It's the um, the special warriors that look after Paul which are called the Fedakin um, oh yes the Fedakin uh, which are kind of like um, a mishmash of Felarine and assassins and all of this and they're, co- they're coloured red and they don't really do much in this film apart from stand around with Paul whilst he, um, mm. he trips out um, and the problem with all of this uh, subversion that this lot are doing is that Rabban is losing control of um, Arrakis because there's this rebellion going on where, led by this mysterious messiah figure called Muad'Dib. By Obi-Wan Muad'Dib. And um, that's not good for his career. Oh, and uh, his sister's born as well, Alia. Oh, we forgot to mention, yes. In some extraordinary shots, um, we see right inside, what, well, what we're told is the womb of Jessica, but looks like tomato soup with a, a sort of embryo figure in the middle of it. It's horrible. Um, Lynch loves that sort of icky stuff. At one point, we do see a, a picture of the embryo just floating in space itself, mm. um, which which audiences must have absolutely loved in 70mm. And as they continue their um, their campaign, who do they run into but Gurney Hallow <laughs> and his God. dog? My God, it's Captain Picard. What have you been doing for the last half hour? By this point, even the Spacing Guild is getting worried about what's going on. Yeah. Uh, they're saying, excuse me, we need some spice, not only to spice up our life, but to run faster than light travel and to do folding to time. In the yeah. Way. And, they, and, and, and the Emperor better watch out or they'll put him in the pain amplifier. 
the, and that's his reaction, which is to uh, get a little bit hammy. Yeah. Um, he's getting sick and tired of the Harkonnens buggering about on Arrakis because he thinks, hang on a minute, that's not what I planned. Um, so he's going to send in his uh, Saudakar soldiers and and sort this shit sort out. Sort this out, and not before. He does something rather nasty to Rabin. Did you spot that? Uh, what? Rabin loses his head. Oh, yeah. Doesn't it get snipped off? Just a bit. And it sits right in front of the Emperor. So um, despite all the um, uh, the nice uh, finery and the protocols, he's not above having someone beheaded. Well, the whole scheme originally was to wipe out an entire Imperial house. So he yep. doesn't like getting his hands dirty, but he'll happily order you know, an entire yeah. dynasty to be wiped off the face of the universe. And if you enjoyed the little speech from Princess Irulan at the start, uh, unfortunately, she says literally nothing um, in that scene. She has a tiny bit of dialogue with the Emperor at the start of the film, but then Virginia Madsen um, gets nothing. She said she enjoyed making this film. Um, she's interviewed uh, in a film podcast online on YouTube. I'll send you the link. And oh. uh, she just said she was very in awe of everybody, and it was a you know, one of her first roles. Well, a bond of mutual suffering, I'm sure. I'm sure being inside this huge machine. Um, the Emperor gets a visit from a tiny um, little girl. Uh, of course, that, that can mean nothing but um, niceness in David Lynch's world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he loves little kids, isn't he? He's really big on... It's ne- never going to be scaring the living daylights out of you. This is a very much of a, a scary child who's come with scary prophecies, who says, poor Emperor. She appears to be wearing a hijab. Um, mm. Which is makes sense for being on Arrakis to to um, keep out the sun and all of that. Um, the the child, very Lynchian moment, is described as an abomination by um, the Bene Gesserit, yeah. <laughs> because of course she's um, been had her genes spliced with spice. Indeed. Yes, uh, but she also has red hair. Oh, I didn't notice that because she's played by Alicia Witt. I didn't That's... notice that at all. Would you like? Some... I, I'll have some more spice. Actually. We are quaffing um, spice as we talk. Well, um, I've got. The, I've already got blue and blue eyes. Well, of course. And um, and you've got red hair. I do actually. So you, nice, you, well you better not have sex with me later. <laughs> I'm warning you well, now. That's the end of every viewing of June. <laughs> <laughs> in your house. Um, yeah, because uh, Alicia Witt would go on to be in. Uh, Twin Peaks. Yes, and I Twin do recognise the name. Yeah, gosh. Uh, I, I, I believe. What's the name of the doctor in Twin Peaks? The town Doctor Jacoby. No, the medical doctor. Oh, um, so the, uh, the, Hayward. Hayward. Yes, he's the. Uh, I think he's Paul, Paula. Paula Hayward. Yes, he's the. She's the younger sister. Oh my God! If if it's the who person play, I think who it plays is. the piano. Yeah. And she's gone on to be in, in lots of other things. She was in Sybil Shepherd's sitcom as really? as her daughter. Completely missed that. And I'm going to track her. She's, uh, she's been in quite a few things. And she's in Twin Peaks The Return as well, I think. Ah. But uh, this is one of her first acting roles. I, I learn something every time I appear on this podcast. It's because I'm here. It's because it's the Jeremy secret sauce. <laughs> the yeah. secret spice. Anyway, um, uh, the little girl has a message for the Emperor. And it's, um, my brother is coming. Uh, which is not good news for him, um, particularly because... <laughs> meanwhile, the Baron's ears prick up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Baron Harkonnen's thinking, I might be able to do a deal with this boy, um, particularly because he's riding an enormous worm 
Um, <laughs> look at look at me and my giant penis. Yes, yeah, it's not exactly subtle, folks. But um, they're all on the back of this, uh, and in fact, it's the greatest uh, worm attack in Iraqi history, apparently. Mm. Um, and they're 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 using the weirding way. They're shooting people down. It's all great fun. Um, it's all completely weird. It's all lots of a bit big silly. action, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it is very action oriented. Lots of extras, lots of explosions. Um, there's, there's worms all over the place. Oh, the emperor gets to do my favourite line in the movie. Bring it, bring in that floating fat man. <laughs> Telling it like it is, um, and the Baron Harkonnen um, has a rather fantastic end. It's it's very low key and subtle, um, as we've described. Um, uh, Alia stabs him with a gom jabar, indeed, and his suspensors, which allow him to float about because he's so massively fat, they go crazy, and he gets sucked out of a hole in the roof and falls into a. Just when you mouth. think he's that's it, he then it's oh dear! Wonderful shot of the worm turning towards the camera, mouth opening, and uh, Baron Harkonnen going straight into it. And yeah. um, so theorists. Will oh, absolutely I missed that something out. Um, the Baron gives everyone who works for him heart plugs. Oh yes, uh, which is a bit vampiric. And uh, and it's his way of controlling them. And Alia pulls his heart plug out as well. And it's a disturbingly. Um, um, possible thing that you could tap into the ventricle and as long as you plug it you'll be fine but the second you take it out you're spewing deoxygenated blood everywhere and you'll last about two seconds um how had one put in yes it was part of the torture thing yes not not nice um so yeah it's good that they were all all uh, mercilessly destroyed by the um vengeful uh quiz at Haddowick. Uh, there's a wonderful shot of um Little Alia on the battlefield, rejoicing in the whole wonderfulness oh, of the um, of blood and um, victory. It's a, it's quite an iconic shot. That the little girl with the knife in her hand. Yeah, and that's that basically. Um, that's uh, that's it for battle. They've won. Um, they they blast their way into the throne room and. Paul so. blasts the Reverend Mother across the room using the voice. Oh yes, which is um, take that, Grandma. Um, I've got the power now. And um, there is one little um, fly in the ointment, and his name is Sting. Um, but, yeah, and, Paul, Paul uh, fights Fade Rother, and Fade Rother really wants to. Uh, he's he's got all his crazy eyes going on. He's he's jeering at the boy, and, um, and which the, is never a good idea in films like this. Uh, they fight, and at the end, he uh, he gets stabbed in the chin, and uh, Paul cracks the floor open. Which is a very Christian thing about temples splitting and and all of this. And we have his last line, which is: "There is a saying on Arrakis that the planet was created to test the faithful. You cannot go deny the word of God." Indeed, and isn't there a little uh, voiceover just to drum it home when it starts raining? Maldib had become the hand of God. Yeah, which is bloody terrifying. You ask me, um, and how can this be? As it says, it starts to rain outside. For he is the Christmas haddock. <laughs> <laughs> An ending which you might be uh, reminded of uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which has a similar. Um, it ends with um, it ends with uh, the people the, of the desert being rained on. Um, all the the the, um, the outlaws, the outcasts, um, unleashing the water. 
I watched uh, the, yeah, the, sort of the last third or so of Mad Max Fury recently with my mother, because it happened to be oh. on television. And <laughs> I was attempting to explain the plot to her. Um, and I think she quite enjoyed the bits that she saw. Um, she was impressed by um, Charlie Theron's fake arm. Mm. Because that's CGI mm. throughout the entire movie. Seamless. And it doesn't notice. I know. I I've, adore the ending of that I've, film as well. I've spoken at length about how amazing I thought Mad Max Fury yes. Road was. Oh, absolutely one of the top films of the decade. Um, certainly the top action film. Um, oh, it's easily the best action film of the decade. Best yes. action film since Speed, at least. Yes, I completely agree. Um, that ending, the little nod between Charlize Theron, the Imperator, and Hustley. That just, at perfect. the end... Mutual respect. Spot on, yes. And and, um, and Max going, disappearing into the, the body of the people and disappearing. Because he's a mythic character. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't want there to be a sequel. I want that to be a one-off. The way I think about it is each Mad Max film is a different folktale told about the same mythical character. So yes. it doesn't matter if they don't properly intersect or anything. And it doesn't matter that Fury Road feels totally different from the first one, even though it's got one of the same actors in. Um, that's the, the, you know, the story told around the campfire as the world was collapsing of where this vigilante came from. And by Fury Road, it's this myth yes. of the man who walked out of the desert and, and gave his service to these women yes, to help indeed. them and to overthrow this cruel warlord. Yes, I completely agree. I saw that film in the cinema, and um, it's quite an empty cinema. And in front of me, um, uh, right at the start, came in about four four guys and sat in front of me. Um, and they're in their early twenties, and they were kind of, you know, who they, they, they were fine. No, 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 no. They were four Asian Asian guys. They were just oh, right. good, chatty, and all this. And uh, my heart sank. And I thought, oh God, please be quiet. Mad Max Fury Road ensued, um, and then it's cut to the end credits. We all got up, the lights got out. The look of shock on all of our faces of what we'd just experienced was extraordinary. I've never seen four guys just looking at each other going, did we? That was absolute, the, literally the best thing I've ever had scorched onto my eyeballs. <laughs> and, it's, um, uh, and you consider the age of the, the director of the films that he'd done previously. Yeah, You just think um, it was called... A Krakatoan eruption by in one review, and it absolutely is. Um, and it's a film that you walk out and you pity people who aren't into cinema, really, don't you? Mm. And I think fine. But what about Dune? I mean, in the in the final analysis, I would say that it's it races across the plot. Yes, it's stripped of all the detail and it's stripped of all the context. Yeah, and ultimately. I do think that it just feels like a po-faced Flash Gordon. Yes. Because there's there's none of the density and none of the intelligence and thought that Herbert poured into the novel, for mm. better or worse. He's really thought about this universe and how it functions and ideas about ecology that, as you say, were totally, you know, hot-button topics when he was the writing in the mid-60s. Yeah, zeitgeist, exactly. And... We just have a very straight-faced space adventure. It looks beautiful. It's got a great cast. Everyone's trying really hard, but no one is giving it the space that it needs to work the way it should be working. Yes. I I think um, 
there's no real criticism of of Dune that I've read over the years which I which I disagree with. It is um, messy. It is humourless. Um, it's impenetrable to a general audience. Um, and even for a literate sci-fi um, a reader, it is a bowdlerisation of the novel. Yes. Um, it remains fascinating to see a genuine cinematic artist in the middle of it fighting the system. You've got corporate entertainment meeting personal vision and the two really going for a massive fight. I think Lynch um, is the loser. We're the losers as um, uh, as the audience. Yeah. Um, but thank God it didn't destroy him, and um, he had enough of um, he had enough agency to crawl out of that wreck. And he produced Blue Velvet, which is a really odd film, but in, but um, a much smaller film, much darker, but it's um, an extraordinary piece of work. Key 80s film. Yeah. Lynch had started work on the script for a second film, oh, yes, Dune like Messiah. Which would be... It's fact, I'd, I'd I love know. to read it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see what he thinks happens What's coming next. out of your mind now? Um, but... Um, one, I think needs to give credit to De Laurentiis, who, after it all, didn't blame Lynch for this failure. He just said, well, I said you could do a, a, a little film and anything you wanted, so off you go. Yes, I don't think he would uh, lose much sleep, apart from the financial loss, um, he, um, artistically. He, he had sufficient respect for Lynch as an artist to say, yeah, make make your little film and, and I'll I'll support it. Yes. And the result was Blue Velvet and the proof that Lynch wasn't just a one-off. And in, in a, a, a piece of delicious irony, uh, Lynch becomes a, a, a massive figure in 90s um, culture with Twin Peaks being um, a central plank of... Suddenly his dream logic becomes marketable. Yes, and, um, and, and Twin Peaks provides a blueprint for the next 30 years and of TV rip, drama. And ripped off left, right, centre, X-Files, <laughs> Fringe, you name it. Even, even just the notion of a mainstream drama that is serialised, mm-hmm. that you have to follow the this, this series long term. Lost reinvented that, but it owes a lot to Twin Peaks. And that TV could have an artistic sensibility. Yes. I mean, something now, like The Good Place, yeah. is a very authored, intellectual piece of television broadcast on a, on a major network. And people say Twin Peaks was year zero for a golden age of TV. Absolutely, because there were great TV shows in the 80s, but there was nothing that reached that, that was plateau. The yeah, and that came out of the guy who was the miner in June. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from, uh, from factory foreman to... God, to, emperor of the universe. Emperor of the universe, I mean... <laughs> He's done pretty well for himself. I wonder what happened to him. Thanks to Anthony for making the time for this podcast. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with almost 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, bring me that floating fat man. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, Hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, edited by Anthony Malone, with music by Phil Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network. Come and visit us at podnose.com.